Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. The History Tricks are going back to Paris. The field trip this year is October 4th through 12th, and registration is now open at Like Minds Travel. So we wanted to start the show off by telling you that. Pause the show, go sign up, and then come back. Last year, we tried to eat all the cheese and didn't make it. Perhaps this year is our year. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. I, I We had so much fun, and it went so fast last time, and there were so many things that I wanted to do on the side that I didn't get to do. So, Yay. I promise not to buy another painting that is too big for my suitcase. Oh, lightning that- <laughs> cannot strike twice in my luck in getting at home. But that was so fun. So go to likemindstravel.com, search for the History Chicks Field Trip to Paris, and we'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to the show. This is part two of our coverage of Alice Roosevelt Longworth, and I have a surprise guest. Her that would be me. Susan Vollenweider. <laughs> <laughs> Not that much of a surprise, but the surprise is that now I have a voice. So thank you so much for taking over that last time. You did an amazing job, and I'm excited to get into this one. When you left Alice, it was shortly after her society debut. She had her coming out party in the White House. We are on the heels of some very successful social yet diplomatic missions for her father, the President Theodore Roosevelt. And it's 1903. Alice is 19 years old, and she's just getting warmed up. The public was very excited about Alice Roosevelt, and the buzz never stopped about who she might marry. You know, that is the purpose of a debut. After all, she was paired with princes. She definitely fell into that category of the dollar princess era. So it was a natural thought. Her family suggested she should marry her cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, (laughs) who Alice called a handsome, good little mother's boy (laughs) and would have really only superficial things to do with him. Alice wanted a slice of danger. She wanted adventure. She began to hang out with the denizens of young Newport. Again, the 400. But unlike the Vanderbilts, with whom she also hung out, Alice's family was an OG. Alice was old money in that society, perfectly welcome and acceptable in every place. TR, her papa, was actively working against some of these family's interests. So awkward for him, And not that awkward for her because she has that rebellious streak in her. And while she does follow convention, To a degree, when she sees something that just doesn't make sense, she just doesn't do it. Or, in the flip side, she does it, you know, and steps way out of the boundaries of convention. She was, however, significantly poorer than the companions she was running around with. She ran around with Bobby Goulet, brother to May Goulet. We actually talked about her during the Gilded Age Heiresses podcast. She's a person that comes with $20 million in 1904 money, mm-hmm. which, if you do the math, is $660 million. Comes with her when you marry her. So Alice Roosevelt with her pin money right. is, is, you know. So Alice got around this, and so did her stepmama, Edith, in a glorious ruse type of way in this day before photography was exceptionally common. A lot of times newspapers would commission artists to draw things. 
And so Edith and Alice would sit down at the beginning of the week and think about outfits they might have worn had they had unlimited money, and then describe them in great detail to the reporters that phoned. What will you be wearing? What will the first lady be wearing? What will Miss Roosevelt be wearing? And they would describe them in great detail and loved to look at the accounts in the newspaper of what they wore. It extended their wardrobe considerably, and it reminded me of Great British Bake Off. You know what I mean, where the artist has been given an ideal description, and they make this wonderful, beautiful cake, and then come judging. The cakes don't always look just like that, do they? Yeah. Edith did like to take a dress that she had and kind of remake it, restyle it to look a little bit different. Alice, however, because she ran in a younger crowd, a more moneyed crowd, She did not like to do that. She would have rather have bought new every time. So that was definitely a good option for them, you know, public facing, like, oh, yeah, I wore this when in reality, no, not even close. It didn't exist. Alice always ran over her allowance and Grandpa Lee could always be counted on to bail her out. He would say, don't tell your grandmother. For years, he would send her extra thousand dollars here and there, which in today's money would be like if your grandpa sent you $35,000 right. here and there. <laughs> and she ran through it. Eventually, grandpa caught up to this whole, I need more money, grandpa thing. And he gave her a thousand dollars and he said, this needs to last you. And if you come back to me, that's it. You're going on a strict allowance. And of course, she went through it. And of course, he actually went through with it too. And he put it on an allowance. And she never in her entire life had free reign over her inheritance. She was put on a strict allowance for the rest of her very long life. And her dad said, and I quote, sister continues to lead the life of social excitement, which I think is all right for a girl to lead for a year or two, but which I do not regard as healthy from a standpoint of permanence. (laughs) Her exploits were legendary, the most innocent of which was getting trapped in an elevator at the White House with Drew Barrymore's grandma. Yes, (laughs) Ethel Barrymore. Now, I will say that's her little brother's fault. So it's not necessarily her fault, but it did get out in the papers and it was like hmm, discussed or whatever. She rode in cars with boys, or should I say men, including noblemen, Newport scions, and senators. Other naughty things she did. She would sneak little bottles of whiskey in her elbow length gloves to formal events to give out to her male friends. She actually wasn't that much of a drinker. She never was her whole life. Alcoholism ran in her family. So she was very aware of what it could do to someone's life. And so she didn't drink, but that didn't mean she didn't encourage other people to. So that was one of the naughties that she did. Also, she ran afoul often of the Women's Temperance Union, even though she was a non-drinker. So, yeah. Yeah, there was rumors flying around that she and Carrie Nation had gotten into it, like head on heads. I mean, absolute rumors, but, you know, let's tie her into a former subject. Yay. She also uh, loved to go to the racetrack. One time a reporter did get a picture of Alice betting at the racetrack and the White House had to get ahead of it and buy the picture back. So it wouldn't run. And TR had quite the little chat with his daughter about that one. We'll put it in the Pinterest board because it's public knowledge now. Yes, right. (laughs) She stood on her head at a lady's tea. She ate asparagus with her fingers, which, by the way, Emily Post says is the proper way to eat it, but only in France and not in America. (laughs) And um, you're supposed to take your gloves off first. Anyway, big scandal. So blurg, America and asparagus. <laughs> I hate asparagus pee, so I do not eat asparagus. Oh, 
I love asparagus because you can like sop it up with hollandaise sauce. <laughs> but the aftermath is so disturbing to me, I'd rather not preload. No, that's mm-hmm. funny. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the level of interest America had in her every movement, what she wore, what she did, who she saw, where she went, sold papers, gloves, hats, dresses, cars, <laughs> sheet music, etc., etc., etc. She went on a trip to Mardi Gras. Her hosts, the McElhaney's of Tabasco fame, and pushed Mr. McElhaney in the water. Mm. She actually got banned. This isn't her fault either. She got banned from a elite event at New Orleans Mardi Gras because of her father's liberal policies toward African-American equality. So you know what? Wear that badge with pride. And she did not, in fact, go to their ball, that particular organization. Well, they lost out because that would have been a wonderful way to get some publicity for their crew, which is what those organizations are called. They're called crews and they have they put on the parades and they have the balls. Anyway. Yep. So even more... um. Not exactly heart attack inducing, but kind of bad, like genuinely bad, at least from my perspective, were a couple of the shenanigans that she and remember old Countess Margaret Cassini got up to in New York and D.C. on two separate occasions. Two prominent men spent over $100,000, that's like $3 million in today's money, on parties for them as you know, the guests of honor with whole orchestras commissioned to play there. I mean, one guy even remodeled his house to hold the number of guests that they had requested be invited to the party. And on both occasions, they ghosted the last minute or came, looked around and left. I don't even know what class to put that in. That's horrible behavior. Yeah, like it's horrible behavior to demand all that stuff in the first place. And then to, to I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, not demand it, even if they just accept it. I would love to throw this ball in your honor. Well, thank you so much. I love orchids and roses, you know, and then not even show up or just show up for just a second. Yeah, that's very rude behavior. Yeah, it makes you feel bad and it's embarrassing. Well, society hostesses one by one dropped old Margaret Cassini from the invitation list, which made her more attractive to Alice. Also, the aforementioned Ethel Barrymore. You know, now that I think about it, she's the grandmother of Drew Barrymore, who was the star of Riding in Cars with Boys, which is something I said earlier. So we've come around to a previous paragraph. Mm. The Drew Barrymore years, I had little children. (laughs) Like right now, Beckett, I am watching West Wing because I never watched it because my kids were too little when it was on. And you're always referencing it. So I've been watching it. You know, I'm (laughs) seasons in now. I'm catching up. I get it. I get it. Love CJ. I'm at the part where CJ is getting stalked. Or maybe did she did she already sing the jackal? Oh, that was way. Yes, she sang it. I was actually thinking of texting you going, I'm watching the jackal. But it was like two o'clock in the morning. The thing I liked about the jackal was not that it was such a good like lip sync or whatever, but the fact that it was just like we've come in the middle of a tradition that is like right. a tradition of the office and they didn't explain it. Right. That's the part I like. Right. Yeah. No, that there's a lot of that. I, yeah. I, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on <laughs> impressions of the West Wing. But yes, I'm enjoying it greatly. So I missed a lot of Drew Barrymore's my actual point here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alice, back to Alice. She felt an attraction to a man, a representative from Ohio named Nick or Nicholas, so Nick Longworth, who was willing to be a part of the fast set in Washington with she and her friend Margaret, but had eyes only for Margaret Cassini, which is a blow. 
I have to tell you, Margaret Cassini herself is kind of a dirtbag. She thought it was super fun to take, and I quote, my friend's bows away from them. Mm-hmm. She thought it was fun and then yeah. would drop them after that she'd peeled them away. Yeah. Not good. No. But, well, we all tell our kids, you know, you have a friend for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And Maggie Cassini was definitely a season. It wasn't a lifetime. And Alice and Maggie Cassini and another woman named Sissy Patterson, they were so popular and at so many events, they were called the Three Graces by the press. The Three Graces are beauty, mirth, and abundance. So I would guess that Alice would probably be beauty. Would she or mirth? She wasn't that merry, really. I would say Maggie Cassini is mirth. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I don't (laughs) don't either. I do want to throw this in here so just so that I can. (laughs) Eventually, Maggie Cassini would marry and she would give birth to a boy they named Oleg Cassini, the designer. Can I please even add something else? She gave birth to a second son whose official name was Igor, but we have met him before. We have met him during the The Mrs. Astor podcast. He wrote a gossip column under the name Charlie Knickerbocker. Hmm. So it is such a small world. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like you get to a certain point. You're like, whose sister married whose cousin? Right. (laughs) This goes around in a circle. Well, um, Nick had asked Maggie Cassini to marry him at least twice, and she once left him in the snow. They were introduced to each other by the hostess saying, oh, this is Margaret Cassini. She's very dangerous. This is Nicholas Longworth. He's very dangerous. Mm. Not good. (laughs) Those are your friends. (laughs) Well, Alice became the most photographed person in the world at the age of 19. To her family, and I quote her younger sister, Alice was a hellion, capable of doing almost anything to anyone at any time. We did not know what wickedness she might next commit. It was felt by the whole family at all times. But that didn't stop T.R. from sending her places or even having her fill in for Edith and do hostess duties. I mean, he kind of walked a tightrope with, oh, I don't know what she's going to do, but I need her for this. So here's what I think is the problem. I mean, not the problem, because whatever, because I'm not there. But um, And they have a dynamic I don't understand. But one of the things that I notice is Queen Victoria had the same problem with her son. She gave him no official duties. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he felt free to carve out his own notoriety. And Edith purposely told TR to give Alice no official permanent duties at the White House. And I think that was a mistake. Because I think if she had felt important, if she had felt valuable... Right. uh, I mean, we have seen time and time again, that she knows where the line is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's going to prove itself throughout the rest of her story. Yeah. Well, Teddy Roosevelt had some giant issues to deal with in the world. Most acutely, Russia and Japan were engaged in a massive war that threatened to destabilize the world. The Panama Canal was finally a go. He had to give Cuba back to the Cubans. There was the first major case in TR's kind of trust-busting pantheon. It had just gone before the Supreme Court, and he won. It was a big deal. But no vice president who had become president after taking over midterm had ever won afterward, you know, to get his own term as president. And TR was determined to be the first. So much of his energies went to basically resume building, show and tell to the party. He was a powerhouse. You know, he'd he'd come in as one of the youngest people in the party, and he was the youngest president that the country has still ever seen. He genuinely made a big impact in a short period of time. Once upon a time, President Tyler 
himself, a VP who had taken over, had been given the title by the newspapers, his accidency. And TR was horrified that that would be his fate. And he wanted nothing so much as to be re-elected on his own terms. And I think Alice wanted that too. She said, I am more interested in my father's political career than anything in the world. Of course, I want him reelected. Now, she was interested in him being reelected. She wanted to help that come along as much as she could. But still, from TR's perspective, he saw his achievements, grand as they are, drowned out in the newspapers by such front page news as the things we talked about before about the elevator and the leaving of the party in a headline like this, her father's daughter snapshots of the president's daughter during the great exposition with every Roosevelt trait feminized, lovably little, and understands men. There was talk about how she ate an ice cream cone, although it wasn't called that yet, and it might be the first ice cream cone on earth. Hooray! (laughs) The fact that she presided over a scandalous Olympic marathon in which the winning American had cheated by riding in a cart. And as an example of what you were just talking about, TR had thrown the switch at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. He was very much involved in it, but that wasn't what got all the press. All the press was about Alice's day, you know, her day walking around and the throngs of people that greeted her. That's what was being reported, not that he was there and did something. So, yeah, that could definitely filter down to his campaign. What's a president got to do to get some newspaper inches around here? He genuinely worried that Alice's behavior, positive and negative, might cost him the presidency. Alice, it has to be said, also thought that TR was a person who always wanted and needed to be the center of attention. So, in fact, they were competitors. Alice said of her father, he was, quote, the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. To which I say, you are two peas in a pod. (laughs) And there was a certain satisfaction in being more popular than her father. I mean, I get it. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, she even said, she said, I was the daughter of an enormously popular president and the first girl in the White House since Nellie Grant, and I looked upon the world as my oyster. But unlike picking up an oyster and getting a pearl, she didn't know what she was looking for. I think, going back to what you'd said before, that if she had something in her life, some purpose in the White House, she would have had some direction. About this time, she said, I want more. I want everything. I care for nothing but to amuse myself in a charmingly expensive way. So to have that self-realization, you know, she had to have thought, you know, it would be nice if I could have directed this energy and intelligence towards something, but no. Well, her father, rather than including her at the outset, would do things like send mean letters to her complaining about her behavior, comparing her to her cousin, Eleanor, who once famously lectured Alice on the proper gifts you might accept from a man, which are flowers and candy, by the way, in case you need to know, while (laughs) Alice was wearing a match string of pearls that had been given to her by a man friend while they were riding around in a car together. Why can't you be more like Eleanor? Why can't you be more like your little sister Ethel, who is right now teaching Sunday school? Why do you have to be you? 
So she was a loose cannon, but they purposely put her back up all the time. Like she'd get a letter from the White House and it made her so angry, just the tone of it, that she would just throw it in the fire immediately and Mm. then leave the room. She didn't even want to be in the room with the letter while it was burning. But then TR decided when it was convenient for him that he would use her for political gain or for his own ends. He was worried that he would not get the Republican nomination from his party as the president. He was very worried about it. He wanted to know what was going on. And everyone who was anyone, the deciders of the party, were all going to be at this one senator's daughter's wedding, to which the president had not been invited. But he said, well, okay, Alice is the same age as this daughter. They could have been friends at some point. Let's go and everyone will assume that Alice was invited and I came as her chaperone. And they crashed a wedding. And Alice was so embarrassed and upset and also angry that, oh, sure, just ignore me and write me mean letters. And then when you need me like this, I guess this is how it is. Well, well, TR won the nomination from his party handily. There had been no need for subterfuge. And when it came to election night, he won. And he didn't just win. He won by a landslide. The only states that he didn't take were a few down in the South. Everything else was his. I myself think TR might have owed Alice some of that powerful election energy. In truth, and I know we're not covering TR, but, um, you know, there's a reason he's on Mount Rushmore. He really handled his business and his resume building activities really did work, even even though his daughter's dresses sometimes bumped him off the front page. Well, here's the thing. If we were telling anybody else's story, usually by the time they get married, we start focusing on the woman. But Alice and TR were so close and their lives were so intertwined. So that's why we're telling so much about TR because it affects her life. That's why we have so much TR in here, which is great. I love it when we can talk about the roosters. At the inauguration, Alice waved at some friends from the podium and TR told her to rein it in. And she wrote in her diary later, the biggest publicity hound on earth had told me to stop. You're (laughs) saying hi to people, she said to him. And he said, it's my inauguration. Fair enough. I mean, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was a similar battle royale with cheese about publicity between two of them during an event that should have been on someone else. The wedding of Eleanor Roosevelt, to which... The president came to give away the bride with all the accompanying nonsense that comes with the arrival of a president anywhere. And after the ceremony was done, the loud and boisterous TR slapped the groom, Franklin, on the back and said, Franklin, nothing like keeping that name in the family and left the room. And a lot of people just followed, um, <laughs> leaving the bride and groom just standing there at the altar. <laughs> we may cover that later when we talk about Eleanor Roosevelt in another episode. But Alice noted caustically that all five bridesmaids easily upstaged the bride with no attempt to do so. Mm. She's very mean. She's very mean. And I think she has resentment against Eleanor because that's the person she's always compared to. Why aren't you more like Eleanor? Why aren't you more like Eleanor? And Eleanor, I will tell you, had a worse childhood. Oh, um, far. far By far. And so she came out a different way than Alice, but they're different people. But she was always compared to Eleanor. And I think that probably just got old. It got old probably by the time they were 10. Yeah. Well, any families like this that are, you know, extended families that are close and do things together all the time. Alice and Eleanor were born the same year. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they were, I don't want to say twins, but they were raised at the same time. 
within the same extended family. So yeah, of course they were going to be compared to each other because they were so very different. No matter what, though, the biggest relief of Eleanor Roosevelt's wedding for Alice is that Eleanor had turned down stepmother Edith's offer to hold Eleanor's wedding at the White House. Alice definitely was holding that close to be hers, you know. Mm. Alice actually wanted to get married to get away from her family, not to put too fine a point on it. She later wrote that she was right now on the verge of, quote, going to Europe. And listeners of the podcast know what that means. It means going to Europe, going to parties, and attracting a noble, titled, or wealthy husband. Alice had told friends that she was going to marry the next wealthy man that asked her. You know, after all, Mary May Golay had just become the Duchess of Roxburgh. $20 million, $1904 gets you a title. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I am so interested in how recent ago that was. Just in Alice's own peer group, people were, I mean, we think always about like, oh, they married for love or whatever. But even her friend, the riding around with boys, Bobby Goulet, married a woman, another Gibson girl looking lady like Alice, married a woman whose parental pressure, like Consuelo Vanderbilt's, made her a reluctant bride. She only married under extreme parental pressure. Mm-hmm. And that's just not something you hear about happening too much later than this. Like this is the last gasp of that, at least right. in Western Europe and America. Right. And Alice was the bridesmaid at that wedding and the wedding of a cousin. And there's that old saying, three times a bridesmaid, never a bride. So she had already been a bridesmaid three times. She went to a fortune teller and the fortune teller told her she'd be married by 22. So what I'm saying is there is a storm brewing or at least energy is gathering. You know, she's willing to do whatever. And so that's the whatever she is slowly turning her attention to. You know, I kept thinking over and over again, especially at this part of the story, how Alice was coming of age at the same time as the Gibson girls. That's why you just made me think of it again. You know, the Gibson girls were woman's image of what the modern woman looked like. And Alice personified that. You know, she was kind of independent. She was doing things that women hadn't done before. Well, that's what Alice was doing. So she was kind of a Gibson girl live. Right. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I got an email from Rocket Money today, Beckett. Oh, what did it say? Well, they would like to help me negotiate my cell phone bill. And I thought, all right, let's do it. So stay tuned for that. I have canceled about $15 of monthly subscriptions that I had that were just add-ons to streaming services that I didn't even realize I was paying because I was automatically paying them, you know, $4 here, $5 there. I love it. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I can see all my subscriptions in one place. Just like you, if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it. With one tap, I never have to get on the phone with customer service. You know that is a giant benefit for me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The cool thing, they'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money if you don't catch it in time, and they'll negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. That's rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. Rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. TR was in the process of negotiating the tricky end to the Russian-Japanese War, an effort that would later earn him the Nobel Peace Prize. Controversial, by the way, since the U.S. takeover of the Philippines was still in, like, it was still warm, you know? Um, (laughs) Cuba, Panama, like, didn't this just happen? So we'll give you a link to all of that if you want to investigate, but, you know, his receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize gave people the hairy yeah, eyeball. I think like, there was mm, papers in Sweden that said something like, uh, Alfred Nobel is rolling in his grave. <laughs> like, yeah. literally, that's what they said. Yeah, it was it was a little controversial. Well, while Congress was in recess, the president planned to send a delegation to the far east of Asia with multiple agendas, goodwill, of course, some final negotiations in person, to further the peace process, and also a little PR for the American presence in the Philippines, just some delicate negotiations and also some trade negotiations. But at the head of this group was William Taft, who at the time was Secretary of War, but who for several years had been civilian governor of the Philippines. So not as random as it might have been to send him there at all. And I think one of TR's other goals was to kind of dangle a shiny thing so that the press would look at the shiny thing and not pay attention to what was going on with the peace relations between Japan and Russia until it was like a done deal. And so this trip was going to be that shiny thing. And what better shiny thing to put in a trip like that to attract reporters' attention than Alice? Was it a get-out-of-my-face Alice invitation? Probably some of it was. (laughs) But even TR could see the positive PR potential of the most famous woman in the world going to Asia on his behalf. You know what, though? This goes back to that time. Like, he doesn't need her until he needs her, you know? Right. It's like he wants to put her on a shelf and have her behave and not get covered with dust or fall off the shelf or break or anything until he needs her again. She's a person. She's so intelligent, you know, she's always learning and she's so curious that there's no way she could sit on a shelf. Great. Well, going along with Mr. Taft and Miss Alice would be a photographer, secretaries, valets, servants, as many as 80 people in total, including dignitaries from Congress and Taft's home state of Ohio. Alice herself invited her own flame, Congressman Nick Longworth. Nick Longworth was one of the gentlemen who was still floating in the marriage pool for Alice. I mean, they were getting out. Men were getting out. They were getting married. Her friends were all getting married. Society expected her to get married within three years of her debut, which we are at at this particular juncture. Nick Longworth was older than her. He was 15 years older. He was the only son of a very wealthy Cincinnati family. Um, His father had even sat on the Ohio Supreme Court. That's how entrenched in Ohio politics. They supported the arts in Cincinnati. They were a big society family. So when Alice invited Mr. Longworth, 
Mr. Taft was very dismayed. I hadn't counted on chaperone as one of my duties on this trip. And Taft actually called on both families. He knew Nick's mother from Ohio. He warned her, if Nick goes on this trip, we're going to come back with an engagement. And then there was a pause. One way or another. Too much of a gentleman to say what he meant, I think. To which the mama said, fiddle-dee-dee, my son will always be a bachelor. Well, Nick was described as, and I quote, debonair, aristocratic, perpetually cheerful, quick with a joke or with a retort. He seemed to have not a care in the world or any regrets. He was also a known womanizer. Well, Taft tried. Taft tried to prevent him from going, but you know, everyone's over 21 here. So on we go. Nick Longworth joined the expedition and it set off toward San Francisco, the jumping off point for parts east. To be fair, Nick, as a representative, was a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So it's kind of a good fit for him to go on this particular excursion, you know, this goodwill mission. I think, and this is just me talking, that he was left off the initial list because of Alice. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I think Alice roped him back in and Taft is like, y'all, we talked about this in our closed door session. (laughs) Anyway, he was circumvented, old Taft. So there you go. On the way across the United States on the train, Alice set off fireworks from the back of the train, true to form, on the 4th of July, and shot her personal revolver out the window at road signs for target practice. Yay, (laughs) America. All the people said was how amazing her aim is. She hit everyone. (laughs) But right, I mean, right in this first leg, she is doing exactly. She is being a very shiny, attractive object. The newspaper headlines are reading things like, Alice in Wonderland, how first maiden of land will travel to Orient, and reporting things like you just talked about. And as an example of how the information was spreading all over the world that this shiny event was happening with this contingent from the United States, Taft's wife, Nellie, was in Europe at the time with her children. And she was trying to get a train in Germany to hold for her while her luggage caught up. And she's trying to say, look, do you know who I am? My husband is a secretary of war for the United States. And the guys are just like, yeah, so what? And finally, she resorts to, maybe you've heard of my husband. He's traveling with Miss Alice Roosevelt. And they stopped the train. And they held it up because she brought out the cachet of Alice's name in Europe. That's how much around the world this story is going. Oh, my goodness. The party set off on the SS Manchuria for a four-month tour. They stopped off in Hawaii, which, as listeners of our show know, was a kingdom that had recently been annexed by the USA. Alice learned a naughty hula, at least by new Hawaiian standards, (laughs) and swam in the ocean at Waikiki Beach with one Nick Longworth. They were away so long that they held up the departure of the ship. Now, later... Alice wrote that she and Nick had to charge the ship down in a motorized launch, to which I think they wouldn't have taken off from Hawaii without Alice Roosevelt. So do you think they really chased it down? I don't know. But that's how she remembered it. On the way to Japan, she scandalized some and delighted others by jumping into a swimming pool with her clothes on. Now, in her defense. And she said this herself, have you seen the swimming costumes of the time? It's practically the same thing as my clothes. You know what though? It's the same now. Like if she's in a bikini, huh, she's in a bikini, but it's like, if it's under things, woo, yeah. under things. <laughs> so it's the same, you know, I see it. 
The newspapers had a field day with that. To be fair, there wasn't a lot happening on the passage from Hawaii to Japan, and these reporters had to send something back. So Alice doing something so scandalous could be whipped into more than it actually was. She actually convinced a 50-year-old congressman named Congressman Cochran, a representative from New York, to jump in with her. Not Nick, as was reported breathlessly in the news. (laughs) No, not Nick. Um, It was Congressman Cochran. This, by the way, is a man who once upon a time had, um, should I say a thing with an A with Jenny Jerome, mama of Winston Churchill. (laughs) Like this man knows some people, knows them. And he knows his women of scandalous behavior. That's for sure. (laughs) Yes. And so anyway, he did a thing. And you know what? Weirdly, he ended up marrying the daughter of the governor of the Philippines. So did he already know her or did he meet her on this trip? I didn't go too far into it. Yeah, no, me neither. In Japan, the reception was, and I quote, like that we had been visiting royalty. The emperor himself had ordered a palace to be readied for Alice and her lady's maid and her chaperone. But Taft is like, no, we, we are all staying together. So many things. Right. The American legation will be sticking together. I appreciate that effort. The streets were lined with people cheering them and waving pennants. As far as Japan knew, TR's negotiations had put them in a position to scoop the win in their war against Russia and also get most of the valuable concessions. So Alice, as her father's daughter, got kind of the hero's welcome they would have given to TR. She's his proxy. And also, she's the daughter of the ruler of the United States. So it makes sense that she's being treated like royalty because in a country where there is royalty, that's what you have, right? I don't know. This is just, right. that's just a thing that I was, went through my head when I was reading about this. I was like, well, they would see her as royalty. The four Japanese princesses were the ones that hosted the American princess. Mm-hmm. Alice began at this time to receive what would turn out to be. I'm going to say a cavalcade. That's the word I'm going to use. A cavalcade of gifts from those she encountered on her travels. Ultimately, when the trip was over, she would end up with these 27 giant crates of goodies from furs, jewels, statues, foodstuffs, silk, feathers. It got to the point where one of the secretaries accompanying them called Alice and her trip Alice in Plunderland. (laughs) And I tried desperately to find he, um, an amusing man, wrote a little poem and illustrated it and gave it to her as a present. And I'm danged if I can find oh, it. Oh, I found there it. There were so many th- by William Strait. Yep. I found it, and it. I don't. I don't. Didn't write it down because there wasn't any stanza that I could say on the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I looked it up, and there's like so many other things. Alice in Plunderland started to become like shorthand for economic disagreement. Mm. Like lots of things were Alice, meaning Lewis Carroll's Alice, and lots of things were Plunderland. So it became kind of a watchword in political cartoons, but this might have been the first instance of Mm. it. Now, she couldn't actually say no to these gifts that were being presented to her. Like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I can't take that. But she had to say yes. So she took everything. And Alice loved getting gifts. So it was a match made in travel heaven as far as she was concerned. But those 27 crates that she brought back, when Roosevelt saw them, he made her pay the duty on it. She said, I returned from the Far East laden with booty. And much to my chagrin, father made me pay the duty on all of it. 
it came out to $1,026, which is about $37,000 in modern day money. So she had to pay duty on everything that she was given. (laughs) I think the alternate, oh, since you're watching The West Wing, there's a certain threshold Mm -hmm. of gift and you have to turn it in. If it's over a certain threshold in West Wing, there's like a big major thing made out of it. Somebody gave one of the characters a smoking jacket and everybody's making fun of him. He turned it in. He didn't keep it, but it's like a scandal that somebody kept something they shouldn't have. Anyway, so I think her other option would have been to turn it in and then she wasn't about to do that. Well, as a columnist, I sign a contract that says I won't take anything from people, like of any Mm. value. I guess the line is, is she or is she not an official representative of the United States government? Yeah. I guess, I mean, that's probably debatable even then. Like, why are you here then if you're not? Right. In the Philippines, the Sultan of Sulu, one Muhammad Jamalul Karam II, proposed marriage to Alice Roosevelt. I'm sorry to say the U.S. hadn't dealt very straight with the Sultan. He had a right to be aggrieved with everybody, and I think he was in a similar position to, we just talked about Moctezuma during our uh, La Malinche episode. So Moctezuma, the ruler of the Aztec Empire, was facing the incoming Spanish like this inevitable juggernaut is going to roll over me. So the sultan is in that position of having to be nice to people that are genuinely rolling him out of his business. He was the last ruling monarch sultan of Sulu anyway. After that, they were all um, sort of figureheads. Mm. Alice was a witness to the beginning of the end of a monarchy that stretched back to 1405 when she was in the Philippines. But I don't think she knew a thing. No, um, of course not, because the streets are lined again with people cheering her. There's parades, there's dinners, there's balls all thrown in her honor. To this day, there is actually a bridge in the Philippines named after Alice Roosevelt. I can put a picture in the in the show notes about that. There's another podcast. It's called What's App, AP, and it's about Philippine history. It's two women who talk just like we do about Philippine history. So I'll put that in the show notes too. Their history is so colorful, I guess is the best way to put it. On to our old friend, Dowager Empress Suchi of China, episode 105 of the History Chicks podcast. Alice was presented at court. She was carried around in a chair with eight bearers and given a Pekingese dog that Alice named Manchu. Alice was very pleased to see the interpreter, a man she had met back in Washington, D.C., and they greeted each other with great friendliness until the Dowager Empress snapped at the man. And he dropped to the floor and put his forehead on the ground. And from then on, he only raised his head to make sure his words could be heard. And never again did he stand up with Alice as an equal, to which T.R. said was a power move by the Empress to say, someone you think of as an equal is less than the dust on my feet. Right. Maybe the shiny was coming off of it for Alice. She was starting to complain that she wanted to see more things, more sightseeing and less official business. She said, I'm more than fed up with the official entertaining, with being treated, one may say, as temporary royalty. So even she's got her limits, I guess. Well, be careful what you ask for. I mean, you know, I think that same thing about Prince William's wife, Catherine. Mm I mean, I guess you knew what you wanted, but that's what you get is no more private life. Like people noted the last time you went shopping for clothes in a store, you're mm-hmm. out. And I know Alice kind of wants all the glory, but none of the downside. I yeah. Think. Well, yeah, it's easy when you look at all the shiny stuff to not realize that there's actual work involved in it. You know, you have to do stuff. 
or at least a um, subsuming of your personality into the greater role. And I just think of social media, you know, all these influencers. It's like, oh, look at this fun thing I'm just doing. But just to get to that point, all the work that was behind that, to be able to show off that living room or whatever. I don't know. Alice would have been a dangerous influencer. I think she would have been like someone with millions of followers. Oh, Um, for sure. For sure. And always getting in like uh, social media hot water, you know. Why are you saying that you don't like the Chinese? You know, no, I'm saying I want to see more of China. But I don't think she would have answered. Do you? I think she would. No, she would have just walked on. Just ignored them. Don't feed the trolls. She's like, if you don't like me, that's your problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, by Korea, rumors aboard the ship were that Alice and Nick Longworth were engaged. Now, what precipitated that? Who saw them where? I don't know, but Taft demanded, I have the right to know if you are engaged. And Alice answered, more or less, Mr. Secretary, more or less. I mean, (laughs) what does that mean? Always raising eyebrows. They landed back in Japan to a seriously sour reception. Well, the final treaty that had been signed as Alice and co. were away in China had not, in fact, favored Japan as much as was expected. Riots had broken out. Alice was advised to go by another name and pretend to be British, as her papa was now seen by some as the enemy. That's reassuring, Mm. especially when you're the most famous woman in the world. Just pretend to be someone else. Like, you're not that. You're... Yeah. Like, is that going to work? They made it out, though. They did make it. And they did have plainclothes policemen around them the whole time. They had security that they have never had at any other point in this trip. In addition to those 27 crates that Alice brought back, what may have been the biggest souvenir was that engagement to Nick Longworth. But they had to tell their families, and Nick hadn't asked TR for permission for Alice's hand. So they raced to tell them, although while Nick went to talk to TR, Alice went to tell Edith, and she said that she waited until Edith was brushing her teeth so that she, quote, would have a moment to think before she said anything. It was reported later that when people asked Nick and Alice about the actual proposal, you know, everybody wants a proposal story. Neither one of them could say. They just kind of hemmed and hawed and, oh, I don't know. I didn't know about it until I read it in the paper or the whole trip was a daze. Everything blurred together. I don't remember. I wonder if he had actually asked her, you know, because neither one of them said how it happened. They had plenty of time later to say and they never did. And I don't think they were the kind of people that would keep secrets like that. Hmm. You know, if I was writing a movie, I would write that Taft saw them coming out of a compromising position and demanded that they get married. (laughs) Yeah. In December 1905, 21-year-old Dallas and 36-year-old Nicholas Longworth publicly announced their engagement and the public was over the moon. More on that later. But the mamas were not at all happy for different reasons. Edith Roosevelt had legitimate concerns. His alcoholism, his reputation as a ladies' man, the fact that he was at the time he proposed or at least was understood to be engaged to Alice, he was actually engaged to another woman in Cincinnati. And the age difference bothered her. Nick's mama worried about losing control. She and her two daughters worked hard to put Nick first. I mean, all that is best in our lives is for Nick. He had an educated, intelligent, motivated sister named Clara, by the way, who nevertheless put herself down as nothing compared to her saintly brother. 
I mean, every woman in the family deferred to him, made his life easier in every possible way. He was the king of the castle. His mama looked at Alice Roosevelt and thought, hmm, this is not someone that's going to join this posse. Right. <laughs> yeah, she was very protective of her baby boy. Yeah, she saw the end of being the boss, frankly. Yeah. Taft had warned her she should have listened, but she did not. <laughs> no. And now this is what she gets. Well, she didn't even move to Washington when Nick was elected so that she could be near him. His mother did. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's a controlling mama right there. T.R. saw the nephew of the woman who'd convinced McKinley to make him secretary of the Navy. His family went back to the Mayflower. His income was substantial. That was always going to be a problem. Because Alice is competing with the daughters of, you know, industry's superior firepower. I mean, so Nick's money was an advantage as far as he was concerned. And Nick's age, according to TR, was an advantage because Nick could control his wife and maybe mold her. Because TR, it worked so well for you, ding dong. <laughs> You're even older than him. Not by much. It didn't work for you. Well, TR had been low-key worried that no man could ever be found who would put up with Alice's behavior, or he put it, idiosyncrasies. <laughs> Alice said to her father, you always told me old Nick would get me, and you see, he has. And for those that don't know, old Nick means the devil. <laughs> I really think she got married to get away from her oh. family. I mean, there's no... Nope. I don't even see another motivation. Nope. She actually, like I said before, had told some close friends, the next man that has money that asks me, I'm going to marry him. Yeah. I have to get out of here. Yeah. Well, and all she knew was Washington and politics. So this guy mm -hmm. kept her there. It's a plus in Alice's book. The world gobbled up any info, real or false, about the wedding of the century. The wedding of the century, that seems a little presumptuous for 1906. I mean, there is a lot of century left. Princess Diana had hold of the same century. Yeah, that's true. Princess Diana had 750 million people watching her on TV. But, you know, they didn't. No. So it's the wedding of the century so far. They're only six years in, but it was a pretty big deal. <laughs> I'm just saying, wedding of the century. Yeah. So a paper in New York broke the story about her wedding gown once people knew what it looked like. Miss Alice's wedding gown, Trousseau, are marvels of art. For the first time, the Americans able today to present an accurate picture of the marvelous Trousseau, including the details of the wedding gown. Miss Roosevelt, who will be the sixth bride to go forth from the White House, and also in an evening edition of the New York Sun. There are 26 yards of material in the wedding gown, over which will fall a full court train, blah, 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 blah. But then they said it would be made of pieces of brocaded and embroidered satin that had been presented to Miss Roosevelt during her trip to the Philippines, which I don't know if that's true because Alice said she wanted to wear some of the fabric that were, was given to her by Empress Su Chi, and TR said it had to be of American manufacture. Right. Even then, wherever it was sourced from, the cards that were used to make that brocade, we had talked about the looms back in the Ada Lovelace episode. <laughs> they were destroyed so that nobody could copy the print on the brocade. Ooh, nice. And in the newspaper, Artists were hired to colorize special photos of her, and they were sized especially so people could get their little scissors and carefully cut them out and frame them for their house mm -hmm. to put on the wall. 
one of the very sentimental things about Alice's dress is that it incorporated lace from her own mother's wedding dress. It was lace from the Lee family, heirloom lace that was on her wedding dress. I thought that was just so sweet and so special. Her grandparents had kept that safe on purpose for this day and and had told her that they were keeping it for her wedding day. So I'm glad that that was able to be done. Gifts poured in from worldwide royalty, kings, kaisers, princes, and emperors, and the Pope, like, (laughs) just a little gift from the Pope. Dignitaries of all nations gave her jewels, tapestries, art, and artifacts. There was, her favorite, a beautiful necklace of pearls from the people of Cuba, 63 pearls that she wore for the rest of her life. That was her favorite wedding Mm -hmm. gift. But even average people were sending in things that they had made and everything that came in. We've already talked about how much Alice loves getting her gifts. She carefully opened it and put it on display in the library over the blue room in the White House for only close friends and family to admire. And that's kind of where she dropped off because she didn't organize it. She didn't chronicle it. She certainly never wrote any thank you notes for it, even though that was customary at the time. And Edith had to kind of spearhead the thank you note writing project, not just herself, but anybody that she could grab to come in and help her write these thank you notes. Alice didn't write a single one. One of the gifts was a two foot tall punch bowl, but it was sent from the Women's Christian Temperance Union of Ohio. The ladies wanted to present this to their representative. But it was really controversial for all the other ladies in the Women's Christian Temperance Union that weren't from Ohio. It's like they have always been against Alice and her behavior, and this is just encouraging it. Fortunately, the Ohio women won out, and the crystal punch bowl did arrive and was put on display, just like all the other gifts. So one of the accounts I read of the gifts had mentioned this punch bowl, this punch bowl given by temperance ladies in an era in which punch was often 30% alcohol, (laughs) which reminded me of a time that, don't ask me why, it was because of a vendor. I ended up at a NASCAR race and there was a booth. This is pre-phones, or I would give you a picture, a booth for Mothers Against Drunk Driving that was selling Bloody Marys, which we bought one because, you know, good cause. Bloody Mary, et cetera, but seemed so incongruous, right. just like this temperance lady. But then I read that there was so much brouhaha after that got in the papers that that punch bowl had come from here and there that the temperance ladies ended up taking it back and replacing it with a loving cup, um, which couldn't be mistaken for an alcoholic container and had the same amount of precious materials mm, in it. Interesting. So it could go either way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like a strange thing to think of to give her. But there were thousands of gifts that came, the expected ones, other gifts of silver, of linen, of household equipment, unexpected gifts like two turtle doves named Alice and Nick. She likes a pet. A whole boxcar of coal from mines in Pennsylvania, a winter's supply of firewood from the Forestry Commission. (laughs) The country was absolutely beside itself. Groups of people started gathering together to pool, just like when they built the Statue of Liberty, pool their pennies and their 50 cents and their dollars to give Miss Roosevelt a present of cash. However, when the news of this gathering fund hit the newspapers, it had hit (laughs) $800,000 in 1906 money. TR put a stop to it and said, 
I regret Miss Roosevelt will not be able to accept any cash. Yeah. I know. She's like, Dad, come on. I need it. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, but no, he put a he's put his foot down. Well, the country was absolutely beside itself. And as the preparations went on in the White House, the agitation grew nationwide on the day of the wedding. The carriages were in line by 9 a.m. First carriage was old Franklin Roosevelt and his mama. The Congress decided to take the day off. Church bells rang all over Washington, D.C. People began to gather, even those without tickets of admittance that hadn't been invited. Vendors started to circulate, selling things like popcorn or sausages. Alice seems very reluctant, according to her own later journal, like obviously grim, curiously so. I wasn't excited, she said. That's not good. She had no bridesmaids at all. There were eight ushers, which we would now call groomsmen, I guess. The no bridesmaids thing, that could have gone either way, is that she wanted to be the only person in the spotlight. But she said later that she had so many friends, she didn't know how to pick just six of them. So she picked none. So I want to I believe that part. She had a very human problem, though, um, that many of us have had in that her hair wouldn't go. You know how your hair goes every uh-huh. day. You have the fabulous curls, the waves yeah. land just right, and you're just going to go to Target. Yeah. But no, the biggest day of your life and your hair won't go. And her pompadour kept falling down and falling down and falling. I mean, it was a humidity. I don't even know the weight of her flowers. But anyway, so she was actually a little late to her own wedding, but I think it was the fault of her hair. It was. Or it could have been the amount of time that Edith took her aside to give her the advice that a mother would give their daughter getting married. And she said, before you were born, your mother had to have a little something done in order to have you. So if you need anything, just let me know. That was it. Like not what that something was. Just something's going to happen. That's how babies come. Okay, great. Let's go. I was trying to look up, this is in part one, like when I was by myself, I was like, I went down a rabbit hole of turn of the century gynecological surgery, and I couldn't really determine what on earth it was. So I decided to let it be. But um, that's not good. No, it's not good. Speaking of rabbit holes, the one that I fell down was in her trousseau, she had something old, something new, something borrowed. She was wearing a blue turquoise ring. And I thought, gee, that's really, you know, something old, new, barred, blue. That's what we do. It didn't go back too much farther than Alice. It started in like the late 1870s wearing this. It was a newspaper article based on an English rhyme. But didn't they used to have penny in her shoe or something like that was part of it? I I had a penny in my shoe. So I think I'd, it was part of the old. Yeah, I don't think part of Alice the same had thing. her penny in her shoe. I don't remember reading about a penny in her shoe. I'm just referring to rabbit hole. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's definitely a penny in your shoe in the poem. Rabbit holery. <laughs> in front of a thousand guests with mobbed streets of well-wishers outside, T.R. presented his daughter to be married and the ceremony was performed. There's, there's nothing more to it. And when it was time to cut the cake, for some reason, the knife was not suitable for its purpose. And a uh, standing by Marine guard immediately unsheathed his dress sword and presented it to her to cut the cake, and it worked like a chalk. <laughs> the bride had never looked so beautiful, read an account later, and I quote, and in this case, that is really saying something. That's yeah. good. 
after the wedding, and you know, I have to say, I, I see the pictures of them right after the wedding and they are grim. Like TR doesn't look that happy. Alice looks unhappy. Mm-hmm. And Nick just looks like a face with a line for a mouth. Edith didn't want to be in the picture. Yeah. Yeah, no. So I don't know. I, we'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, it's not like a happy. But you know what? My grandparents' wedding was very similar. No smiles. So maybe it was a somber occasion. Although Alice Roosevelt having a somber occasion, hmm, not sure. So I found out why she didn't ever smile in her pictures. And it wasn't necessarily punk rock, but the most popular caricature of her papa had him with this big toothy grin, and she didn't want that applied to her, so she never gave anyone a big toothy grin to caricature, Mm. because she didn't want it. And so she was afraid that one photograph like that, and it would roll out across the world. I was looking for pictures of her, and it wasn't until much later in her life that you even saw any with her mouth open. To see that she had Mm-mm. teeth. Yeah. Despite not having a smile on her face, after the whole ceremony and wedding breakfast, Alice went to change into her traveling suit. Edith went with her and she said, Mother, this has been quite the nicest wedding I'll ever have. I've never had so much fun. To which Edith replied, I want you to know that I'm glad to see you go. You've never been anything but trouble. This episode of the History Chicks is sponsored by Quince. And I must say, Quince and I have had a nice long-term relationship. Last Christmas, not this past one, the one before, I got all my kids the cashmere sweaters from Quince. And recently for myself, I got a washable silk green skirt and a cream cotton cashmere blend cardigan. And I sent you the picture, Beckett, and you can say, yes, Susan, that was so cute. It is very cute. You look so happy in that picture, too. It's obvious that you feel good in that outfit. I felt very good in that outfit. Well, Quince is your go-to for luxury essentials at affordable prices. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. That's very important to me. I got, very recently, these two rib knit dresses. They're just simple, flexible knit sheets that are lined. They are so cozy you could sleep in them or for the winter throw on a sweater, throw on a clog and some Scandinavian tights and you're ready to go. Or in the summer, a little pair of flats and you can go straight to the wine bar. I mean, they are so versatile. I got them, of course, in black because you know me and also blue. I'm going to be Wow, stepping out in the color range. I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Give yourself the luxury you deserve with Quince. Go to quince.com slash chicks for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash chicks to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash chicks. But Alice wasn't going to let what Edith said to her ruin her day. While a decoy car took off from the front of the White House where all those throngs of People were there watching, waiting to catch a glimpse of their princess. Alice and Nick snuck out a window to their own car and headed off on their honeymoon away from reporters and just that massive public outpouring. 
She had said later about this time, There was no Hollywood, and there were no movie stars in those days. They liked my father, and I was having a good time and not really giving a damn. She was it. She was as famous as Taylor Swift is right now. So they went out for a brief stay at the same friend's mansion that once hosted Alice Roosevelt's own mama and papa on their own honeymoon, which I thought was a nice closing of that circle, and then went off to Cuba for honeymoon number one. Memorable for two things. Number one, they had their first fight, fueled by daiquiris and a bright sun. Mm. I don't know what they fought about. She didn't write it down, but nevertheless. (laughs) (laughs) It was witnessed, it was loud, and it was fueled by tropical alcohol. The second thing is Alice saw the battlefield that made her father so famous, and she was a little underwhelmed. I think this was a great idea. They went out on it on horseback so they could tour it, which I guess in theory, I mean, she had it all set up to be something impressive, but it wasn't for her. Also on this part one of this honeymoon Alice received an anonymous letter from a woman saying, Dear girl, he loves me in a way which he and you do not share. That love, for I am the mother of his child. Alice kept this letter all those years. This anonymous woman claiming that she'd had a long-term relationship with Nick, that she still had one, and oh yes, there was a child involved. Well, I mean, what would you do with it? I mean, maybe that was what the fight was about in Cuba. I don't know. No one knows. Yeah. So there you go. That's a lovely way to start out a marriage. They came back to set up house in Washington, D.C. Her her stepmother said to a friend, I hate to think about Alice (laughs) buckling down to domestic duties. Don't think this is going to happen. I am of the opinion that she probably hired an amazing housekeeper because One thing that happened when they were first married, other than the first night, the only night they sat across from each other at a table, not really knowing what to say to each other. (laughs) Other than that one night, they were out or they were in with 30 people. I mean, they were social, rural, sleep through the day people Mm -hmm. for this second phase of their honeymoon. So Alice must have found someone to take control of the gross details that she didn't feel like doing with. Well, the house was already set up because they moved into the house of Nick's mother. Nick's mother had moved to Washington. So they moved into Nick's mom's house and she went back to Ohio. So controlling mom still has her finger on the whole relationship because this is her house. She decorated it. She probably hired all the staff. Well, hooray. I hope they were efficient. Alice probably appreciated the fact that she didn't have to mess with it. Honestly, that's when I would too. And then another thing that Alice decided she wasn't going to mess with, there was a ironclad tradition of protocol around calling and visiting hours that Alice at first decided to go ahead and step into. I mean, Washington, D.C. was notorious for being even more touchy about this than London, which is saying Mm -hmm. something. So she went out on her round of calls. You leave a call for so-and-so. You leave a card. You put in the silver tray. You turn down the corner, blah, blah, blah. She did all this one time. And then she said, you know what? Not for me. Not doing it again. And in her open houses, all that happened was that randoms came in and stole mementos just right out her house. And she decided it was not worth doing. So those are two traditions that she just jettisoned, which is a word I love, immediately. First time out wasn't for her. 
not going to do it. Later, when her cousin Eleanor struggled so much with that protocol, Alice is thinking, I don't know why she doesn't just ditch it. It's not even (laughs) worth it. She watched Eleanor struggle and just thought, you're putting it on yourself. Yeah. Well, Eleanor also moved into her mother-in-law's house or mother-in-law, the other side of the house. So she didn't move out. That situation that Alice didn't have, Eleanor did. You know what, though? Here, Alice I, is that magnet that, like, pushes people away. And Eleanor, everyone's like, I can get along with Eleanor. But, like, Alice? Mm. So they peace <laughs> out. <laughs> Another thing she did about this time is she decided she didn't like her name. And she wanted people to call her Mrs. L. And they did for the rest of her life. I don't think I can right now because we've been calling her Alice. And that's my middle name. And it's so nice to be able to say it over and over again. I didn't know that Alice was your middle name. It is. And it's with a Y. Fancy, right? Ooh. I was named after my mother's two best friends, Susan and Alice. Aw, cute. And now we set off on honeymoon number two, which I like to call Now We're Talking. (laughs) They went off on an extensive tour of the continent of Europe, in which you would have thought Taylor Swift had landed. It might as well have been everyone wanted to see her. Everyone wanted to talk to her. From the King of England, who was so delighted. Well, we've talked about Bertie before. Bertie loves him an American heiress. And, you know, especially a beautiful American, maybe not an heiress, but fame, you know, is a certain kind of fortune. And he loved sitting by her, the American ambassador, who in fact had a daughter who had married into the nobility. He decided that Alice came to Europe to meet Europeans, not expat Americans. And so he packed his house with thousands of people to meet her and the expat community of the moneyed and influential in London was a little bit put out by this. (laughs) <laughs> because they were sitting there not having got invitations to meet Alice. That was a little bit of a woo. When they went to meet the king, there was a huge scandal because Nick was wearing, quote, knee breeches. And it was in the papers, you know, just how dare he? That's just not protocol. It's just not done. But that wasn't the British papers. The British papers were reporting wonderful things about them. It was the American reporters that were all up in arms because. Nick was wearing what they consider the improper pants to meet the king. Uh, People are so hilarious. The French president treated them to a personal hosting dinner adventure, and so did the Kaiser. He hosted them aboard the good old meteor. She was feted and petted by the crowned heads of Europe, and Mr. Alice had to get used to being called Mr. Alice. (laughs) Which he was thumbs down about, just like Desi Arnaz was about being called Mr. Lucille Ball. (laughs) Just like Philip was about being called Mr. Queen Elizabeth, you know. Right, right. Luckily, when they got back to the United States, she was instrumental and absolutely supportive of getting him reelected to his seat in the House of Representatives. To the point where her own father, I don't think for the first time, but for the first time that we're talking about, said, I am enormously proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of your husband. I'm proud of how you've grown and how you supported him and what you have accomplished. Like, that's all it takes. (laughs) I mean, honestly, during this period, she became closer to her family than ever before. She used to leave her house 
come hang out with her little sister, come mm-hmm. hang out with her stepmother. It was harmonious. And mm-hmm. time was she had to hurry to dress before a dinner in which she was invited out because she had been in the bosom of her family all day. I don't think we focused on this too much, but I think she was a great big sister because I really think she really cared about her siblings. You know, I am particularly fond of her relationship with Kermit. And I think, I mean, we're not going to talk too much about Kermit until a little bit later, but I think if Alice had been born a a boy and been allowed to have free reign of herself, she and Kermit would have been very much alike. Mm. Mm. Um, TR and Kermit like to go on adventures together. And I I do think Alice was excluded from that by virtue of her gender. Yeah. Which is a, a big bummer. Teddy Roosevelt promised when he had been elected that he was not going to run again, which historians of every era had said was the greatest mistake of his life. Because having said it, he felt like he was duty bound to abide by it. So even though he was perfectly able to run again, you know, he'd already served a term, but it wasn't really his term. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then he got elected to one term. So technically he was eligible to run again. He had promised not to. So he decided he had to handpick his successor, and he settled on our old friend Taft from the Asia trip, the Secretary of War. So despite the fact that Alice had just had surgery inside the White House, it was an appendectomy. So strange. It just reminds me of when we saw on The Crown how the king had his major lung cancer surgery just in a room that they just... Took the furniture out of. Mm. But yeah. despite the fact that Alice was recovering from major surgery, TR depended on her to kind of ask Taft the leading questions about his position and like make sure he was on board to say whatever it is. He used the wiles of her to make sure Taft was going to like toe the line of the TR agenda type of thing. She actually laughed so hard once that she popped her stitches and had to go back into the doctor. So that's good. But Taft won, even though in her heart, Alice thought even at the last minute something could happen to Taft or around Taft that would prevent him from being the candidate and they would have to default to her father. Like she really, really wished that it was her father that was running and not Taft. Nevertheless, Taft was elected. And then TR and Alice became very resentful of Taft because he had a mind of his own and didn't do whatever TR told him to do. So there started to be a weird and noted in Washington resentment between the Taft families and the Roosevelt families. For one, Alice's in-laws, who were all about Taft from their home state, you know, family friend, were pretty cold to Alice about her and her father's incipient anger about him. And then Nellie Taft issued a pretty boilerplate invitation Not even like meaning it as an insult or anything. Like, let me grab you a ticket to the inauguration, you know? Mm -hmm. Let me just grab you one. I'll make sure you get one. And Alice went around Washington saying, oh, I am to be permitted with a ticket to go into a house I've run in and out of for eight years. How gracious of her. How blah, blah, blah. Like nonsense. And of course that got around. And, you know, Nellie Taft's opinion of Alice Roosevelt's, whatever it had been before, went way down. Like, why do we got to be like this? So they fell out over ridiculous social things and they fell out over some appointments that Taft had promised to keep. The French ambassador was one of them and didn't. All the members of the family were a little grumpy. And for some reason, this coalesced into 
the craziest thing I think I've read yet about Alice Roosevelt. She went and got herself a voodoo doll that looked an awful lot like Nellie Taft and buried it on the lawn of the White House. And I don't think anyone has found it. So, I mean, I don't think anyone's looked for it, but it's somewhere. There it is, still there. Interesting. Definitely. And maybe it was because of the voodoo doll. Maybe it was because of everything else that was happening in their, quote, relationship. But Alice was banned from the Taft White House. She couldn't go back in. (laughs) And you know what? It's not the first administration that's going to ban her. Spoiler. So did the voodoo doll work? We don't know. But it did snow on the inauguration day. And I'm very sorry to say that Nellie Taft as able as she had been in steering her husband in into this great position, suffered a stroke. And instead of presiding over White House events, it was one after another, her four sisters in turn that served as the hostess in the White House and not Nellie Taft. I'm sorry she didn't get to enjoy for very long the fruits of all of that hard work. So that's over the big controversy of getting tapped in. That's over. TR and Kermit decided they would go big game hunting and then off on a European tour with the family. Well, that's that. But Alice was still in Washington, D.C. as her husband was not free to go on such adventures. And she did something else that I think is amazing. She attended a series of Orville and Wilbur Wright's airplane demonstrations that were being held just outside of Washington, D.C. And it was a very fashionable excursion. She took her car out there, surrounded then by congressmen and dignitaries from countries all over the world. And all of those men and their accompanying women folk knew to stop by Mrs. L's car because she had thermoses of Tom Collins's. <laughs> two parts gin, one part lemon juice, a little simple syrup, and two parts soda, in case you're wondering. I she was wondering. Had- I don't think I've ever had a Tom Collins, and I like gin, so. There you go. Pretty easy. Maybe, maybe so, during gin season. That's true. I know. How many days until the first day of spring? Ugh. I don't know. I'm doing dry January, so. But I do have a bottle of of, of Clico in my cheese drawer again, which is the perfect place for it for February. <laughs> that seems like, and I don't know who it would be for. A bottle of Clico in my cheese drawer. That seems like a name of a of a biography or autobiography. <laughs> so Alice sailed to London to meet with her family uh, on the end of their European tour, and unfortunately, was there during. A sad event. King Edward VII, old Bertie, had died and Alice, among others in her family, attended the king's funeral. Alice also attended the famous Black Ascot of 1910. The king had been an avid race fan and Ascot could well have been canceled, but instead everyone came dressed in full mourning. Alice became A thing that you would not believe if you had heard the first episode of the Alice Roosevelt coverage, but she became one of TR's most important political sounding boards. She and he used to meet up and talk politics and strategy. Isn't that a turn up for the books? One thing I noticed she reminds me of, and I think many of us have this same occurrence If someone wronged you in elementary school, you've forgotten Mm -hmm. all about it, but your mom still holds a grudge, right? 
<laughs> your mom like i'm still mad at this kid that was judd's bully in second grade and i yep. won't go to his parents restaurant because of it and how many years ago was that that was a yeah. long time ago so alice is like that anyone that has wronged tr in the past she has beef and she doesn't typically keep it to herself no i think you know given the right set of circumstances like i'm sorry to say her gender being something different she would have loved to have gone into law and the politics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the law and politics. I guess is the right way to say it. But just given the way her mind works and the things she was interested in and not being afraid to ask questions or speak her mind. Alice once said that her aunt Bammy, had she been born a man, would have been a good president. And, and I think she should have applied that also to herself. Yes. And, you know, like when kids go off to college, your relationship as a parent changes with them. You're no longer just, you know, the overseeing parent helping to mold them. Now you're, I don't want to say a friend, but it's a more friendly relationship. And I think that's what's happening with TR and Alice at this point. They're having that switch of their relationship, you know, becoming more compatible and encouraging and friend-like. So TR heard and propitiated rumblings of discontent about the direction his party was going in. And he decided that he was going to run against Taft for the presidential nomination of the Republican Party. Now, that's almost unprecedented to unseat a sitting president, which is what Taft was in the, the nomination process. Now, that put Alice's husband, Nick, in a big quandary. Taft is an Ohio man. Nick is an Ohio representative. He's going to have to decide which, which way to go. During the nomination process, TR did not win the Republican Party's nomination. And students of this convention will tell you that there may have been some shady behavior by future President Harding, who joined the beef list. <laughs> now, instead of receiving the nomination, TR pretty much split the party almost in half. Harding offered to support Nick as the governor of New York, to which Alice called Harding a crook, wouldn't apologize and wouldn't speak to him again, even though her husband begged her to. So it was no. TR has split the party. Alice has cut her husband off from the governorship of New York over this party split. And it went even further. TR decided that technically he could run again for president. So he would. And he was going to do it under a different party, not a Republican or a Democrat, a progressive party. The party, technically, the progressive party became known as the Bull Moose Party because he said he, would, he felt as strong as a bull moose about his chances. This party's platform was very, as we know from Roosevelt's previous campaigns and work, antitrust, anti-corruption. He was for votes for women. He was for an eight-hour workday. He was for restrictions on campaign finance and contributions from corporations. He was for a social security program. Does this sound very Republican? No, it does not. No, no it sounds exactly like FDR, actually. <laughs> Yes. And we are in a period of flux between the parties where issues splinter and create interesting bedfellows, mm -hmm. something that will really crystallize during the civil rights movement, as a matter of fact. But right now we're in a period of time where sometimes you'll get two guys that are in opposing parties that have 
genuinely the same positions right. on issues. And you're thinking, I don't, okay. Both Nick and TR together asked Alice, please, I think you should stay completely out of both of our campaigns. I think you should actually stay out of the public eye because I think it would just muddy the waters. I think you would hurt Nick's chances of reelection. And I think since you are the wife of a representative, you may hurt TR's chances also. Hmm. So she only disobeyed once. She snuck out from Cincinnati, got on the train and went to see her papa during a speech in Chicago and then went straight home. No one caught her. But the next day she got a telegram. TR had been shot. He was about to give a speech in Cincinnati and a man just came up and shot him just without having spoken any words. Luckily for TR, he had a steel spectacle case in his pocket and also he had gone off book with his speech that he was about to give. He didn't need his notes in his hand and his folded speech was also in that pocket. Those two things slowed the bullet down enough. He was shot and insisted on giving the speech. I will make this speech or I will die. He insisted on having the man that shot him brought to him and did nothing but give him the dirty eyeball. A very uncomfortable silence ensued. And then TR got up and spoke for an hour and a half. I mean, that is some macho behavior. or And that's why he's on the rock. <laughs> So Alice, after getting this telegram, was horrified and ran to her father's side, just very aware of the full circle nature of his injury. You know, that which brought him to the office in the first place, i.e. McKinley getting shot, might just be the thing that has taken him out. But he rallied. He was good. The bullet did stay in his chest for the rest of his life, but he did recover. Hooray! And then the election. So curious. It's almost inevitable. The popularity of TR split the Republican Party almost evenly. It was 27.4% of the popular vote went to TR versus 23.2% to Taft, making TR the only third party candidate to beat a candidate from the two major parties in the United States. So had the Republicans chosen him at the conference, they would probably have had the presidency. Instead, they handed the White House to the Democrats in the personage of one Woodrow Wilson. Alice was supporting her father. Nick was supporting Taft. Both of them lost. Nick was also up for re-election. And guess what? He also lost. So having split the Republican ticket, this whole election cycle also really split the couple because they just couldn't get back to where they had been, which honestly was never a great place. Nick had never stopped drinking. He had never stopped womanizing. So they just never in private came back as a couple. In public, however, they would always appear together and look as though they were happy or content, but that wasn't even close to the, what the relationship was like. And it all pivots at this election. So before she left Washington, D.C. for the wilds of Ohio to accompany her husband, as protocol dictated, to his home base, she watched the suffrage parade that we have talked about many times from many perspectives on this podcast, the one led by Inez Mulholland in white with a crown on a white horse. 
the one where they carried the placards and banners that say, we demand an amendment to the Constitution of the United States in franchising the women of this country. Alice never worked for suffrage. Her influence could have been powerful. I mean, she wore trousers once in Chicago (laughs) and changed a lot of fashion behavior. I I only wish she had taken it up. The only time she ever even, quote, threatened to was when her mother-in-law made her mad once and she said, you know, I should become a suffragist. That'll show her. I'll bring that in the house. And that's the only time she ever even considered working for that cause was out of spite. Right. I don't understand it, really. I mean, she had strong views and wanted votes for women, but didn't... I mean, all the other unconventional behavior, she didn't pull that one out. I don't understand that. I don't know. Maybe she felt like she couldn't dive in with those women. I don't know. She couldn't be the center. I'm just speculating. I I haven't read anything about it, but Hmm. maybe she felt it was too late. You know, she kind of likes to be on the cusp of change. And at this point, you know, the women's uh, suffrage movement has been going on for some time and she would be kind of a Johnny-come-lately, maybe she thought. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Also, before she left, she did call on the president's wife. Didn't have a chance to blot her copybook with that particular lady because that poor lady died right after Wilson took office. So there's that. Now, she didn't get banned yet from the Wilson White House. Hmm. (laughs) Not yet. Well, she spent two years in Cincinnati with no official home of her own. She instead, with her husband, lived in her mother-in-law's eccentric house that was called Rookwood. Going along with what Susan said earlier about the fracture of their relationship, Nick, with no official duties but chilling, networking, and golf, added on alcohol and lady persons to the point where, I mean... Nick was actually discovered by his wife as she turned on the light switch with one of her friends um, in flagrante, as they say. So it's not even a secret or a, uh, you know, it's it's out there. It's in the open. And Alice, let's see, assorted jet settery. I mean, she tried to stay away from home as much as she could, going back to Sagamore Hill, going off to London, going off to Paris like you do. She just tried to stay away as much as she could. And not knowing what was going on at her house, she would get back home and Ethel, her stepmother, would would say things like, why are you being so spiteful? I know you're sad your husband lost, but you shouldn't take it out on the rest of the family. This is another occasion where I just wish that people could have talked for three minutes. I say that all the time about sitcoms too. Like the whole hook of this episode is that you guys didn't know that something was wrong. It's easy for me to say they just don't have that history of like, open your heart to me, you know. Anyway, that's the support that Alice is getting from home. Meanwhile, TR and Kermit, so macho, got lost in the Amazon. We have referred to this. I couldn't even tell you which episode. They got lost. Um, One of their guides got freaked out by the monotony of the jungle and the despair of their position and like killed somebody and everybody was raging with fever and Kermit went out, made it to civilization and got help and brought a whole expedition back to save TR and the rest of the people that were still there. Like Kermit is the man. Kermit is the man. I like Kermit very much. And he actually got out of the jungle and like took a shower and went and married the daughter of the Spanish ambassador. (laughs) I mean, you know what? 
Alice and Kermit together as brothers, like Alistair and Kermit would have been, I mean, that would have nonsense. That expedition in the Amazon wasn't the only expedition that TR had been doing since he had left the White House. The Amazon one was the Roosevelt Rondon Scientific Survey Expedition, which is not to be confused with the Smithsonian Roosevelt African Expedition. So he's just this adventurous guy in his political retirement. Do you remember when we covered Clara Barton, how I said that once upon a time in Cuba, Clara Barton encountered TR and he demanded supplies that she was carrying in her wagon. And she says, you know, you may not (laughs) commandeer my supplies. And he's like, what? But don't you know who I am? She's like, you may ask me politely for them. (laughs) And he asked her politely and she handed over supplies that he needed. But like... TR is hilarious. Anyway, so he's always been like that man. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, Alice got back to the United States only 10 days before Germany declared war on Serbia. Uh, One by one, as alliances clicked in, the rest of Europe jumped in. Nick was reelected and Alice was back in the thick of things in Washington, D.C. Her house became sort of an uber salon and underground news service. She heard everything. She knew everyone. Her house was actually the room where it happened. A lot of deals, a lot of conversations were had at Alice's house. Again, I think she would have been a fantastic politician. I mean, she's doing dinner party politics. But Wilson was not that man, at least as far as TR was concerned. Wilson decided that he and his main objective was to keep America out of the war. Um, Looking back on World War I, it's actually sort of hard to understand the, it really is hard to understand the reasons for it. And I think Wilson, you know, Wilson is an academic and he is not a stupid man. And he, I think, was hoping we could just stay out of it because it just really didn't make a whole lot of sense morally or whatever to join up. And so, you know, at the beginning, that might have been fine. And it was fine for a lot of people. But then Germany decided to take its U-boats and sink, for example, the Lusitania, in which over 100 Americans died. There was a public outcry for revenge. And TR and Alice were on the forefront of the anti-German sentiment in America that followed. They lost for TR a lot of people of German descent, especially in the Midwest. I don't know if you're from Chicago or Milwaukee or um, parts of Ohio are are very German descendant. Mm -hmm. So Alice was no longer the princess in the White House. Wilson actually had three daughters, two of whom married in the White House, by the way. And in fact, he had a new wife. We talked about the West Wing earlier, and the writer of the West Wing also wrote a movie called The American President, in which the president is dating. And he refers to this period where Wilson courted and married someone while he was in office. Well, this is the only time that's really happened. And um, so anyway, so she was no longer any kind of head honcho at the White House, but she was key to Washington, D.C. Society, had her finger on the pulse of everything, and she was extremely knowledgeable behind the scenes. And one particular thing struck me, and I don't, I don't like this at all. Alice knew about Franklin Roosevelt's affair with Eleanor's secretary, Lucy Mercer. Not only did she know about it, she invited them to dinner together. Mm-hmm. 
She once tried to tell Eleanor about Lucy Mercer, and Eleanor said, I don't think wives should know anything their husbands don't choose to tell them, and put a stop to Alice saying it out loud. So Eleanor must have known. Oh, I was just going to say, there's no way that Eleanor didn't know. Yeah, so that's disreputable of her to do. Yeah. Anyway. In 1916, Wilson won again um, with the slogan, he kept us out of war, he kept us out of war, and it was a big deal, but almost immediately, Germany unleashed what they called unrestricted submarine warfare on American ships, British ships, anyone in the ocean. They terrorized the whole Atlantic, and by April, the United States almost inevitably had to go to war. TR wanted to create a Rough Rider-style military unit, and he gathered men. I mean, 2,000 men a day were writing to TR to volunteer. A senator put a bill into Congress to allow volunteer units in the war, which everybody knew was for TR personally. This wasn't just a generalized, hey, any volunteers? No, this was for TR. The president not only said no thank you, because TR had campaigned, you know, for his opponent, by the way, and had been in newspapers castigating the president for having no balls. I don't know. <laughs> better. I mean, it was almost that vulgar. Well, and so, speaking of Alice, she also was not a big fan and wasn't shy about talking about President Wilson enough that she got banned again from the White House. Yeah, this is when she got banned from the Wilson White House. Mm-hmm. So she's two for two on that. Well, in private, Wilson told someone, the best way to treat Mr. Roosevelt is to take no notice of him. That breaks his heart. He wants to use the army to make up for his own shortcomings because he has shown an intolerance of discipline. But in public, he said, it would be very agreeable to me to pay Mr. Roosevelt the compliment of sending to their aid one of our most distinguished men, but the business at hand must be undramatic, practical, and scientific. No, it did, in fact, break T.R.'s heart. His real sentiments leaked out. There are a series of articles that were published in the Kansas City Star. We'll provide you a link. There's over 100 of them. He was close personal friends with a man named Nelson who ran the Kansas City Star. And that man allowed him free reign to say what he would about Wilson. Published first in the Kansas City Star and then syndicated nationwide. And... They were so critical of President Wilson that at times T.R. was on the verge of um, almost sedition. He was called a moral obstruction to the successful prosecution of the war because of these articles. Also, the Kaiser's best agent in the United States. There were calls for his arrest. And again, I keep thinking, what would happen if social media was around then? I mean, we know exactly what would happen. But man. What about the rest of the family? Well, Sister Ethel, who we really don't talk about that much. I like Sister Ethel. She and her husband went ahead of the U.S. having been in war. They went to perform medical service in France. She was a nurse and her husband was a surgeon. So uh, all four of Alice's brothers went away to war. It became Alice's mission. I mean, yeah, we're going to roll bandages. We're going to serve apple pies. We're going to pour tea. We're going to be super bored. It's now my mission to get my father back to Washington. Mm -hmm. And she carefully arranged meetings for her papa, just carefully orchestrated combinations of people having been invited to her house at the same time. Or dinner party politics. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, 
TLR's own thoughts about the war, the following peace once the war was over, and the role of America in the world after this war did emerge as the Republican Party platform. So Alice Roosevelt Longworth was behind the scenes engineering all of this to happen. She was the facilitator. The party was likely coalescing to nominate TR as the president in 1920. He was still only 59 years old. We forget, like, he took office very young. So he was still only 59 years old. Perfectly acceptable to stand for office again. But his health began to fail. He had some old injuries. Once upon a time when he was courting, he decided to box someone to impress Alice's mother and got a punch in his bean and had a bum eye. He obviously still had a bullet in his chest. And then his adventures with Kermit had left him with some jungle injuries. Um, Alice was by his side as much as possible and ran protection against reporters and well-wishers alike. She was like the mental bodyguard and also his secretary. She was the one that wrote his articles out that he dictated to her and she helped him edit them. Archie came home wounded from war. T.R. Jr. was wounded in Paris. but. Little Quentin. Quentin was an airplane pilot, and he was shot down in battle. The notice arrived on New Year's Eve 1919 that he had died in France. A lot has been written about how the aftermath of World War I led directly to World War II. You know, the treatment of Germany after the first war led to the second one. And that is a lot lengthier rabbit hole than we can possibly cover on the podcast. How might it have been different? Had TR been the president who steered the course after World War I, which seems to me to be a spectacular NaNoWriMo subject <laughs> or a dissertation subject. Yeah. If you can find a committee that will accept alternate history. But as President Wilson was literally on his way to Versailles to attend the peace conference after World War I on January 6th, 1919, TR died at only 60 years old of a stroke at home at Sagamore Hill, and Brother Archie's telegram says it all. The lion is dead. It was the end of an era. The History Chicks would like to welcome Factor as a new sponsor for our podcast. And I am looking forward to welcoming Factor into my house. Just placed my order this week. I'm so excited. I won't have to go to the grocery store. I won't have to do prep work. I won't have that, oh my gosh, I have to cook again moment because I'm going to get chef-crafted, restaurant-quality meals ready in two minutes. Two minutes. Something I'm looking forward to. So I'm not much of a resolutions person per se, but I did tell myself, hey, B, in the new year, you need to eat more plants. That's all. That's all it is. And Factor is going to help me with the eat more plants scenario because at lunch, I often default to a piece of toast because I have, you know, between conference calls or on a conference call, don't tell, I'll be eating my (laughs) lunch. And it's often something very, very simple with, with this two minute cook time and the fact that I asked them to send me the vegan slash veggie option, I'm going to be able to fit the eat more plants almost unconsciously into my day. It's spectacular. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm very excited for Factor to come into my house. And you can be too. Head over to factormeals.com slash HC50. 
and use code HC50 to get 50% off. That's code HC50 at factormeals.com slash HC50 to get 50% off. Alice was convinced that Wilson's mockery and treatment of her father had broken his spirit and caused his health to fail rather than illness or injury or the death of his youngest son. No, it was President Wilson. He was to blame and he would pay. And she made it her mission to oppose in every way possible Wilson's beloved proposal to form a League of Nations. It was this grand plan that the nations of the world should come together, disarm to the lowest possible level, preserve the territory of other nations, like basically an ultimate and everlasting peace plan. Reasonable enough, certainly, after the years of war, the great losses, the destruction. Wilson actually got the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts, (laughs) (laughs) but she decided she was going to be against it. And the U.S. never ratified the treaty due, say the books I read, largely to the influence Alice had over Washington. Yes, so she versus the Nobel Committee, sort of. The objections, national security, we can't live without a standing army, and Congress wanted to reserve the power to declare war. So those were the two things they hooked it on, and that's why Alice boosted throughout Washington. Well, that goes back to her loyalty. You know, somebody in her mind had wronged her father, and so she's going to do everything in her power. They're not dead to her, but they're not on her side. It's amazing the things that we can convince ourselves of. Yeah. Like if she'd well, seen the League of Nations on paper without any emotional attachment to it, I wonder if she would have been like, oh, that's a good idea. Well, I mean, obviously she wasn't by herself in the objections. You know what I mean? Like, so there were other people that had non-emotional reactions to it, but who's to say? Who's to say? She started haunting, this is something she did for the rest of her life, pretty much. She started haunting the Senate gallery to watch debates. And she would be very, very alert for anyone daring to use the name of TR to bolster their position that she didn't think was worthy of, you know, keep his name out of your mouth. Like, you know, (laughs) she really resented people using TR's name as a ladder to climb. Well, that is a very good mission for her. So those feelings came to a head in 1920 when the Republicans selected Franklin Roosevelt as their vice presidential candidate. Now, according to Alice and all of her family of Roosevelt's, this was supposed to be Ted Jr. He was the heir. I think it's funny how this is acting like a monarchy. Franklin Mm -hmm. made the grievous error of campaigning using TR's mannerisms and catchphrases. And the same last name, although it's pronounced differently in the different sides of the family. But yeah. Yeah. Roosevelt versus Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Right. Well, Alice was infuriated. You know, here he is with officially the name in his mouth. He owns that name, but it doesn't matter to her. Ted Jr. was sent by the Bull Moose loyalists to literally follow FDR around and make sure to say that TR and Franklin had no shared philosophies and don't be tricked by the name. He doesn't speak for the real Roosevelt's. (laughs) Which, of course, (laughs) is infuriating to the FDR camp. Um, They actually called him a diluted Roosevelt. He is only one and a half percent Roosevelt. I mean, there was, shall we say, a definite rift growing between the branches of the Roosevelt family, for sure. This is just like a year after their patriarch died and the youngest child. 
who was a grown man at that point, but that's heavy emotional trauma right there. So they're just still reeling from that. And all this is building up and becoming a package. She continued her habit of attending debates even after her triumph for one, well, many reasons, but one specific (laughs) reason. Let's call him Jason Momoa. I mean, Senator William Bora of Idaho. He was a powerful speaker. And from here, his behavior seems reminiscent of her father and his willingness to fight and shout and get what he wants. And he was amazingly attractive to her. And I think that they got along, not exactly like her and her father, but I think they were um, intellectually. No, okay. Like the elements of her father where they they got along and they could argue and discuss things and they both got each other. I think she had that same relationship with William Bora with the added element of Jason Momoa and her not being related to her. Yes. I think Nick Longworth, I mean, he was very popular. We don't really go into how popular he was. The drink was really getting a hold of him at this point. Yeah. And their marriage was really in in name only now. Bora was a philanderer too, so they all got that in common. Mm-hmm. Their relationship was an open secret in Washington. And just to throw this out there, Bora was married. He had a 30-year marriage to a woman. They had no children, but he was in the same situation that Alice was in, and that just this political, public marriage, nothing further. There was a scandal that emerged in the country called the Teapot Dome Scandal. Not going to get into it. Here's the 30-second summary. Basically, a pay-for-play between officials of an oil company and the Secretary of the Interior. It was not good. It would have caused cancellation in the modern day. Two of Alice's brothers were implicated, but later cleared. Now, that's an important fact. Cleared of culpability. Because we go back to Eleanor Roosevelt, who mounted a steaming, hissing teapot on her car with a sign referring to Ted Jr. during his run as governor, as she was campaigning for his opponent. That's dirty. That's dirty. I mean, it's dirty. You it wouldn't have expected it Eleanor Roosevelt. No, no. And I think she's hit an age herself where she's kind of saying, I'm going to speak my mind. And that was her speaking her mind in a very clever way, I think. She admitted it was bad and dirty pool, but nevertheless, Ted lost barely. And it may have been Eleanor Roosevelt's fault, thus ended his political career, really. And Alice always blamed Eleanor Roosevelt for this. That sort of fair play for what Ted had done to FDR. If you think about it, this is like the worst Hatfield and McCoy situation, although everybody has the same last name. Right. <laughs> Well, Alice, at 40, got the news that she was expecting after 18 years of marriage. You know, I waited 11 years, so you do what you do. There was a firestorm of speculation about who the baby's father might be. Literally no one, and that's a capital N, (laughs) capital O, (laughs) suspected Alice's husband in any way of being involved with the creation of said baby. No. And it was so dramatic that when Alice told her stepmother, Edith, that she was pregnant, her response was to take a cruise to Cuba. Edith (laughs) just got out of town. (laughs) She's like, see ya. So Alice took especial pains, given her own mother's situation with her, of course. In fact, her due date would actually fall on February 14th, Valentine's Day, the very day her mother and grandmother had both died. Timing was timing that February, man. That's a month for the Roosevelt's. She hired the best and most famous obstetrician 
and went to give birth in a hospital, not as common as now, of course, and was delivered safely of a small daughter who was indeed born on Valentine's Day. As a joke, she wanted to name her Deborah, using (laughs) Bora's last name, which obviously wasn't going to fly. The name Aurora Bora Alice had been bantered around for quite some time, so I guess that might have been on the table too. But what they decided on was Paulina after Paul in the Bible. There's probably some obscure literary reference, honestly, and then they said it was Paulina out of the Bible. Maybe. You're right. Good point. Good point. It doesn't matter. They called her Presh for Precious. So we can just, and Presh is not in the Bible. It's important to note that at this point when Paulina is born, Alice is 41 years old, which in modern time is considered a geriatric pregnancy. And I say that having had a geriatric pregnancy at 42, it's harder on your body. So she's definitely older. She'd never had children. Nick is 56, and he dives into fatherhood. He's There's photos, and I don't know, maybe they could just have been staged. But from all accounts, he was a very loving father to this child, despite knowing it wasn't biologically his. And Nick sort of had to accept official paternity. You know, it was kind of a societal rule if he wanted to keep his position. But, you know, he also wanted to. Honestly, along with the whole country, Nick became obsessed with baby Presh. He was known as a very indulgent papa. He took her to work with him. She was this beautiful little child and the Senate would let her sit in the Speaker of the House's seat. And as far as Paulina was concerned, by the way, her father was Nick Longworth. No one told her until she was getting ready to go off to college. Like no one even let the kid out of the bag. All of Washington can't keep a secret, but they kept that one from her. Ah, it's extreme betrayal. But there you go. Alice called on Bora's wife with this baby. I don't get any of this. Everyone acted big. All I'm saying is all four adults in this relationship were stellar. I'm just, I don't know how it worked. I don't know what the arrangements were, but everybody was grown up about it. Because of the pregnancy and the delivery of this beautiful baby, Alice was riding another wave of popularity. She was on a cover of Time magazine. She was in a Pond's cold cream ad, all looking like this loving mother to this child, when in reality, she was not, it wasn't in her nature, really, to be that warm, fuzzy, maternal person. And she wasn't. Well, I don't know. I am confused by the accounts of Alice's parenting because you do get, I mean, I know they had clashes later when um, Paulina was a, a shy and retiring teenager that didn't fit the mold or whatever, but as a little kid, especially not really having a, any um, good role models, I think for the standards of the day, she did okay. I mean, there was a nanny that if you think yeah. about it, like in the high social class, you right. think about Mary Crawley they saw their child an hour a day. Mm. Yeah, no, that's very valid. I I guess I'm comparing how Nick was being a father to how Alice was being a mother. And I know that's not fair because I probably put a higher uh, expectation on her behavior. But she did have a good role model in Edith with Edith's children. In that family, they were always at loggerheads, but the family was very loving. So she did kind of have a role model. 
Honestly, parenting has even changed since when I was in middle school till now. The expectations are so high now. And I just really don't think she transgressed the standards of her time for motherhood. Mm -hmm. I would hate for us to think badly of her. And, and, you know, and maybe most influential woman in Washington and mama in our minds can't coexist, but they, they seem to coexist just fine. I think it was it was Nick that was the exception. He was the over-the-top guy. Yeah. So, yes, you're right. I might be very unfair to her in the rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the 1928 election, Alice had hopes of Nick getting the nom, or maybe Ted Jr. If we're going to have Roosevelt, by all means, it should be Alice, said everyone. Um, she was actually seriously considered for a vice presidency for a tiny bit. Just It started as a sort of joke, and then it was like, Hmm, that's actually not a bad idea for a minute, you know, and then they came to their senses for reality and what would really happen. Now, her friend Ruth, ironically, the very person that TR had crashed her wedding, remember all those years Mm -hmm. ago? Yeah. They didn't know her then. Ruth had become a very, very good friend. She became the first woman congressman from her state of Illinois, only the 10th woman to serve in Congress. I mean, hooray, that is amazing. So maybe Alice, with her firepower, might have worked. Well, they didn't even give her the chance. It was Herbert Hoover and his vice president, Charles Curtis. I went to Charles Curtis Junior High, by the way. Did you? Yeah, he was the first Native American in the big ticket. So progress had been made, but not for women. No, that would take a very, very long time. So the Great Depression flipped Congress. People had had enough of what was already happening, and Nick lost his position as Speaker of the House, and he got a standing ovation. He sure did on his last day. Who could ask for anything more? His colleagues thought he was just fine, but his lifestyle was catching up to him. By that spring, he became extremely, extremely ill. And at the age of 62, he died in 1931. Paulina was just five at the time. So that's kind of flashing back to Alice's childhood, you know, with her mother dying, her loving mother dying so early. In a touch of Edwardianness that we literally don't understand today, again, Alice invited Nick's current girlfriend and his ex-big girlfriend to stand next to her at his funeral. I mean, you know what? (laughs) Ten points for just realism, I guess. I know. Right after Nick died, the party approached Alice and begged her to fill Nick's seat. Now, that is something very normal called the widow's succession. There have been, in America, 48 women who have taken the seat of their husband who either died or left office and fulfilled the remainder of his term. It wasn't at all unusual, and it was a methodology to hold the seat until the next election for the reigning party. And they really needed this seat because the house was so close that that seat made all the difference. And nevertheless, she balked at that. She didn't like public speaking. She felt like it wasn't for her. She declined their offer. And they ended up losing that seat, by the way. So... Yeah, and that's just another contradiction of hers that she doesn't like public speaking, but she's this outgoing, outspoken woman. She said that for her entire life, she did not like public speaking. What I love about her is she's just this bundle of contradictions. Like you're like, oh, I love you. I admire you. And then she does something heinous and you're like, oh my gosh. But then next time, yeah, it's just a delightful contradiction. 
During the Depression, like everybody else's, and with her husband gone, her income was not anywhere near what she would have liked. And the wave of popularity that she had seen come again with the birth of Pauline, it was gone. So she had to start doing things. She had to not necessarily get a job, but she did start to work. She started to do some ads for cigarettes. The woman smoked her entire life. Lucky so I strike. Guess that was specifically. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a good fit, right? Um, and then in 1933, she published an autobiography called Crowded Hours. It was a bestseller. People couldn't get enough of it. And then if you read it, there's nothing really in there. Like you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to read all about this naughty woman. And it's a lot of parties and gifts. And here's a list of the gifts that I got for my wedding. And there's like no substance to it. Paulina wasn't even in her autobiography. Paulina, as she grew, just as a little side note, it's ironic that Edith got Alice, the polar opposite of what she had wanted in a daughter, because Alice sort of got her polar opposite. Alice had a very forceful personality. And when you're a little kid, you might not know. But once you grow up and you're expected to be in society and you're expected to meet your mother's friends, there's expectations. And Paulina's nerves got on Alice's nerves. And when Paulina developed a stutter because she was so freaked out, Alice would finish her sentences or just be impatient. Like, come on, I wish she would just grow up, you know, please mm-hmm. just be spicy, do something. And and it wasn't in her nature. And the two clashed a lot about expectations, especially that of a society leader. And now, we, you know, looking back in our rearview mirror, we're like, oh, generalized anxiety disorder. There's a name for that. There's therapies for that. There's, you know, treatment options. Or they could have just let her read her book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she's You know, different. come down, stick your head in, wave. Hey, it's me. I'll be upstairs. The end. But no, no. we can't let people be themselves. So Alice continued to have extreme influence in Washington, really, for the rest of her days. Um, One uh, word or push from Alice could make or break you, I think. Her main failure, though, was she failed to prevent FDR from succeeding to the presidency, and she never got over that. That was the place that should have gone to Ted Jr., the place that should have. Now, here is something I think is key to the entire episode. Why is she so angry? Why? About Franklin. And I think, and this is just me, that this is the position that should have been hers had she been a man. Mm, I think she was her whole life frustrated that she had ineffective proxies. Right. That disappointed her. And what would have been better if she had been a man? I'm just telling you right now, given the popularity of everybody in question, if she had been a man and TR died, that presidency would have been Alice's or Mm -hmm. Alice Dares or whatever his name would have been. (laughs) Yeah. Immediately. There wouldn't have been a question. Everyone would have admired the brashness. Everyone would have admired the the fight and the push and the connection. I mean, you know, there wouldn't have been a doubt. Mm -mm. No, you're absolutely right. She and Franklin were pleasant to each other in their youth and growing up. Even she and Eleanor were not as, you know, at each other's throats as some people would like you to think, especially now, because that relationship from their childhood where they were getting compared to each other all the time, that was in their family. Now it's playing out on a national stage in the press, people comparing Eleanor Roosevelt to Alice Roosevelt. 
Eleanor's coming out as the little angel on the shoulder, and Alice is coming out as the little devil in all of it. At one point, they had competing columns uh, in assorted newspapers, Mrs. Republican versus Mrs. Democrat. They weren't called that. They were called other things, but they covered (laughs) the same kind of subjects and were polar opposites functionally. And you know what? How is Eleanor Roosevelt getting this halo? She's the one that tied that teapot to her car, but whatever. Again, we have to look at the body of work. (laughs) No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about their columns. They started about the same time. Eleanor Roosevelt's would last until 1962 for the rest of her life, a daily column. And Alice's, which was called What Alice Thinks, lasted for 18 months. She also had one called The National Scene that ran in other papers, too. But, But nevertheless, yeah, Eleanor's lasted longer. Honestly, I think Eleanor was more into it, too. So it could have been that Alice was just like, and now I'm done. Well, and Eleanor was the kind of person that liked, you know, some kind of structure in her life. And it's like, oh, I'm going to sit down now and write my column. That's what I do now. And then I move on to this other thing. Alice is just like, oh, what's on my mind today? So writing the column must have been kind of difficult. She actually was invited to write articles, Alice was, for the Ladies' Home Journal, and she was pretty insightful sometimes. She actually did a, I wouldn't call it an expose, but a, a whole um, biography of all the women who had made it into Congress and mm-hmm. into positions of power. And she's a great admirer of Frances Perkins, by the way, as are we, former subject. I'm glad to see that, that Alice recognized that Frances Perkins had one of the greatest minds of her generation. Right. Alice's columns were an opportunity for her to publicly say what she thought about the FDR administration. Kind of bashing him, she's saying things like FDR was one third mush, two thirds Eleanor, which I guess is kind of a compliment. Eleanor? Kind of also true? (laughs) Question mark. I know. I'm not saying she was wrong, but just she took all these opportunities. But this is not an administration that bans her from the White House. So, oh no, she went to social events. Paulina went and had playdates all the time over there. And yeah. Alice would show up just at lunch, like blah, blah, blah. Oh, it doesn't have to taint, you know, this doesn't have to taint. We're just family. Right. We have this other thing going on outside, but in here, it's all chicken salad. <laughs> so, the overarching Alice Roosevelt during these years was her opinions were sought, her positions were felt for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as an explosion and ripples thereafter. Her tongue was feared. She ran what was called a political drawing room. People called her, and I quote, just as benevolent as malevolent. <laughs> However large the party is, Alice Longworth is its natural center. She has inexhaustible vivacity, her great art of imitation, the grace of her attitude and movements. But first of all, is her ruthless intellectual honesty. She gives lavishly without stint. She does exactly the same if she doesn't have an audience. And she is getting uh, positions within the Republican National Committee. She was elected to a women's division of the Board of Counselors, as well as in 1936, she was an official delegate to the RNC convention that was trying to put Governor Alf Landon from Kansas, who? (laughs) On the ballot. See, people from Kansas know who that is, but that's... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not from Kansas. I read it. I was like, his name was Al? Kansas has a surprising amount of powerful dudes that emerged from it, like Bob Dole's from a little town in Kansas, for example. Anyway. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I like Kansas. I lived there for five years, but I never ran across Alf Landon. (laughs) 
Also, speaking of 1936, and let me just throw out one more book that she was involved in. She and her brother, Teddy, edited a collection of poems that were sent in from people around the country, poems that maybe they wrote or they read that gave them inspiration while getting through this difficult time in the country's history. It was called Desk Drawer Anthology, Poems by the American People. As Paulina grew up, she was able to get away from the Washington life by going to college. She went to Vassar in upstate New York. Unfortunately, she didn't last there even the year she was expelled. It turns out that she had taken an overdose of sleeping pills. And unfortunately, you know, looking back, we'd be like, come on, child, let's get you some some help. But that was just not something that was available to Paulina or maybe even that Alice would even think of doing. So the standard book of protocol says if you are having a bad time at home as a young woman, your probably best course is to marry someone to get out of the house. Hmm, who does that sound like? So Paulina at 19 married a man named Alex Sturm, probably to get away from the house. Unfortunately, and as you might guess, given the circumstances, it was not a very happy relationship. She had inadvertently followed in her mama's footsteps and married an extremely drunken husband and all the problems that go with that scenario. At 21, Paulina gave birth to a daughter. They named her Joanna. Unfortunately, just a few years later, her husband passed away from hepatitis. That was aggravated probably by his alcohol use. Paulina and Joanna both moved down to be with Alice in Washington. Unfortunately, within five years of that move, Paulina also passed away from suicide. So it um, was very important to Alice that it be placed in the paper as an accidental overdose. The doctor had prescribed her sleeping pills to deal with her grief symptoms, just never came out of the spiral of grief after her husband died. And it was those sleeping pills that caused Paulina's ultimate destruction. It was devastating to Alice that this had happened, that her daughter had become so unhappy and Alice knew that she had to take charge. They had had a conversation before Paulina's death about what would happen since her daughter only had one parent, what would happen if I died? And they had decided that Alice would bring up Joanna in that case. Alice as a grandmother was very different than Alice as a mother. She even said that, I should have been a grandmother, not a mother. She took Joanna in and raised her in a very, very loving way. They had a lot of things in common. They would go and ride horses together. They enjoyed talking and reading poetry. They had intellectual conversations and tea nearly every day in the parlor. It's lovely. They were like peas and carrots, as Forrest Gump might say. I think that was a little bit of redemption for Alice. Definitely. I mean, I don't think she ever at least came out and said that she blamed herself for Paulina's death, although one of her friends, and this is a paraphrase, said that no, she didn't blame herself for her daughter's years of unhappiness, but she was more aware than ever that her own persona had not served her daughter well. So she changed. How about that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, and who was that that said, when you know better, you do better? Was it Maya Angelou? It was indeed Maya Angelou. Yeah. Why don't people understand that people can change? And it's a good thing. It's 
It's good. It should be acknowledged. So we acknowledged it. Yay. So I would like to, for the most part, leave Alice and Joanna in that blissful endgame. I do want to briefly say that Alice had definite opinions about each and every occupant, and in many cases, his wife, that came through that White House. And you just never knew which way she was going to go. There didn't seem to be rhyme nor reason to it. As she got older, she was less intent on the Republican word, you know, the Republican Mm -hmm. party line. Now, she was helped a lot, I think, by the fact that those parties were swiveling and swirling and not adhering to their age-old landlines, you know. They they were themselves transforming. So the fact that she chose person over party in many cases... It, it impressed me because that's actually what you should do is look at the behavior and the positions. And that's what she started to do. Yeah, she was a registered Republican for her entire life. But when you start looking at her politics at this juncture and beyond, even earlier, actually, if you think about it, she's kind of a Republican by heritage. You know, she would never think to leave the Republican Party, but that doesn't mean that she has to think like their platform. And she also um, supported Democrats in her later years, too. Um, Let's see. Who did she love? She loved the Eisenhowers. She did not vote for, but was befriended by John Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. She loved the Kennedys. I do love a Kennedy. She said they're just like the Bonapartes. (laughs) (laughs) She campaigned for Robert Kennedy. She had to train that boy. She had to train him to take her sass because she would lay it out and he would get shocked and offended. And she had to explain that it was a joke. And so by the end, he was going to give it back to her. And he did a good job. She had to loosen him up a little. (laughs) One she didn't have to loosen up was Lyndon Johnson. They had a fantastic relationship. She voted for him and he was a Democrat. So if you want to know about Lyndon Johnson, and you, you do, at least a little, you should go listen to our Zephyr Wright podcast. Lyndon Johnson was... A mess. Lyndon Johnson was either bad Johnson or good Johnson, and you never knew which one you were going to get. As an example, Alice and President Johnson were very similar in that (laughs) regard, and also so was, if you've seen The Crown, you're going to know what I mean, Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret in the scene with Lyndon Johnson. Just imagine that that is Alice, and you wouldn't be too far wrong. Um, Yeah. Peas in a pod. Although I think it's funny that he said, why do you always wear that hat? I can't give you a kiss. And she goes, why do you think I wear this hat? (laughs) She was still so influential in Washington politics, still doing dinner party politics, so much so that she was referred to as Washington's other monument. Oh, speaking of that, she's famous for a cushion that she kept on a sofa in plain sight at her house. And what did that say, Susan? It said, if you haven't got anything good to say about anyone, come sit by me. (laughs) And I know that there is somebody that's listening right now that's like, get to the quote. Where did that come from? Truthfully, while the actual source can't be found, it most likely wasn't her that said it the first time. She was given that pillow as a gift from a very good friend, and she loved the saying so much that she made it her personal motto. If she had had email, it would have been her signature line. At the end of her life, that pillow was still in her parlor encased in clear plastic. To keep oh, she wanted to protect it. I um, am very interested to know where that pillow is now. And it just occurred to me. 
I haven't done any research. I wonder, wouldn't it be oh. great if it was in the Smithsonian? Oh, it would be. Somebody tell me where that pillow is. They're like, oh, we'll ask the history chicks. <laughs> we don't know. Here, you know what? I'll Google it right now because maybe we okay. can tell people where it is. I always thought that quote was Mae West, by the way, who is another quipster. Yeah, and it's often attributed to Dorothy Parker. Yeah, not her either. Well, that fits too. That doesn't it? That's probably why. There's a uh, website while well, you're looking that up. There's a website called Quote Investigator. And this guy does the deep dives into who really said something, where it was first published. So you can try and find the source. I love Quote Investigator. I will never stop telling people to go there. Well, they're selling it for $113 at furbishstudio.com. But I want the real one. There are an infinite amount of vendors. The Southern Fried Design Barn will sell you one for $36, but you're looking at polyester. Oh, we could easily put it on a t-shirt and just attribute it to probably Alice Roosevelt Longwear, and then people would have to explain it. It would be a good conversation starter. What do you mean? Of course she said it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it is. Somebody tell me. At this point, she is an aging woman. Her health is going to start to decline. She has smoked her entire life. At 71, she broke a hip. And at 72, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy, only to have to have a second one at the age of 86. So she was able to be in remission for quite some time. When people asked her why she was going into the hospital, she said, I'm going for an overhaul. And then she said, I'm the only topless octogenarian in Georgetown Hospital. (laughs) At this age, she was quoted as saying that she loathed two things, going to funerals and going to parties with anybody her own age. (laughs) She was very good, by the way, about cycling young people through her parties. She kept it fresh. She kept it new, knew who the movers and shakers were, knew but probably didn't use the slang of the day, that kind of thing. Like She was the kind of the grand dame of chemistry and matchmaking of politics, even as the generations went by. So I read some quotes from younger people that say that they just kind of stalked DuPont Circle, hoping to get a glimpse of her. She did keep up that very active social life through her 80s into her 90s. In 1976, she attended a White House state dinner honoring Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, who had come to the United States to help the U.S. celebrate our bicentennial. That picture of Queen Elizabeth meeting Alice Roosevelt, I have rarely seen Queen Elizabeth so happy as in that picture. It's almost like when Taylor Swift tells the audience, I'm so sorry, there's no special guest, and they cheer, and she's like, oh, I'm, for me? You're cheering for me? (laughs) Queen Elizabeth says, you're the special guest. I mean, oh, I'm the special guest? Oh, you're the special guest. It's just so cute how each of them is so famous and happy to meet the other. I love that photo. And in that photo, if you look at her handbag, Alice pointed it out to the queen, showed her the evening purse that had diamonds on the trim that was presented to Alice by King Edward VII, the great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth. Oh, I love it. I know. This party must have been amazing because she hobnobbed with Cary Grant, Bob Hope, Lady Bird Johnson. That's the other episode that you can listen and learn a little bit more about Lyndon Johnson. But she had a great time. Unfortunately, it was her very last trip to the White House. Um, That was in 1976. And her health just kind of started to decline some more. 
in her 90s, she was getting to a point where she was bedridden. She didn't travel far from her home. Eventually, she developed pneumonia and died in her home on Embassy Road, DuPont Circle in Washington on February 20th, 1980, at the age of 96 years old. Her granddaughter, Joanna, was by her side. And just a few days earlier, she had said to Joanna in one of her lucid moments that Nick was not her grandfather. But at that point, Joanna already knew that information. She was the longest-lived U.S. presidential child. She outlived all of her siblings. When they were talking with Joanna and filling out the death certificate, they wanted to know what her job was. What do we put down? Housewife? Uh, No, no. A writer? Mm. And Joanna's friend who was with her said, how about gadfly? And that (laughs) was what was put on her death certificate. I love that. Alice had been asked at one point what she had accomplished. And her response was, I leave the good deeds to Cousin Eleanor. And per Alice's very unconventional wishes, there was no funeral. She was an atheist. She had no reason to have a funeral where people were there just hoping that they were seen. She didn't want to be any part of it. Joanna had to field a whole lot of calls that said, no, you need to do this for your grandmother. She was a national institution. She was beloved. And Joanna held firm and there was no funeral. Alice Roosevelt Longworth is buried with her daughter, Paulina, at Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Her granddaughter, Joanna Sturm, is in her own 70s. Uh, She lives in New York City. She's a historian and a philanthropist. And she has a daughter who she named Alice Roosevelt Sturm. I just wanted to read what isn't actually her obituary, but reads like one. From the book Princess Alice by James Bro, B-R-O-U-G-H. Everyone in Washington was flattered to be invited to share in Alice's elegant company and fascinating conversation, which could make over the world in her image as they listened to her. Her salon on Massachusetts Avenue served as an intellectual hothouse. Flattery prompted visiting politicians and other pontificators to respond by trying to repay her graciousness in noticing them by pressing into her hands the gift they valued most, the secrets of their scheming. She knew and expected to be told everything that was afoot in the Capitol, glowing in that particular social sunshine, which only she had survived to dispense, her guests would ask her opinions of their plots. In a republic which too many people persistently mistook for a democracy, Alice remained the last of its true aristocrats. And now it's time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. I think the major biography that probably both of us read is called Alice, Alice Roosevelt Longworth from White House Princess to Washington Power Broker by Stacey A. Cordery. It is a deep dive, my friends. There's a lot of pictures in here that's actually um, very useful. Something I wish that we could do in the podcast when we say, oh, what about blah, blah, blah? And then you see a picture of her in Asia. So anyway, this book has lots of photography. It goes in depth. I own this book, so have turned down a lot of pages. The end. I'm not going to, I'm not accepting feedback. (laughs) (laughs) I think this book is important because... The author had access to Alice's diaries. She kept a diaries for years and years and years. 
And she also had access to her granddaughter. So between the two of them, as well as all the other sources she uses, which are all clearly footnoted, this is like the deep dive book. Also, I like a book called Princess Alice, a biography of Alice Roosevelt Longworth by James Bro, B-R-O-U-G-H. A very new book is called White House Wild Child, How Alice Roosevelt Broke All the Rules and Won the Heart of America by Shelley Frazier Mickle. I thought this was interesting because she was a novelist turned biographer. It was an easier read than that main biography. It didn't have, obviously, as much detail in it. So I thought that was, it happened to be the first book I read, and I'm glad I did because it was just a nice introduction, you know, casual read. The first book I ever read about Alice Roosevelt, and this is the one that I have had on my bookshelf for a long time. I don't know how many decades or years, but um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth by Carol Felsenthal is the first one I had. I have taken the dust jacket off for reading purposes. I'm actually looking at, that's the book that came in today. (laughs) Oh, it's a good book. It's a good book. I do recommend that one as the first foray. Oh, okay. Um, You know, that's the one I had. That's the one that got me intrigued. So if you're picking and you're at the library, that's actually a good book to choose. Except if you're at my library, they don't have it. (laughs) I had to buy several books, several sources for this particular one, including Hissing Cousins. They had it. It was out. It was checked out. Hissing Cousins, The Untold Story of Eleanor Roosevelt and Alice Roosevelt Longworth by Mark Pizer and Timothy Dwyer. That's for all of you who want more of Eleanor. And that's all I'm going to say about Eleanor. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have to tell the story of why we're not covering? Because everybody's, why aren't you covering Eleanor? Do you want to tell a story? (laughs) I mean, every time we prepare to cover Eleanor, something dire happens. The end. You know, did Ellis bury a voodoo doll somewhere in our podcast network? We don't know. Maybe. But I have so many Eleanor Roosevelt books, it's not even funny. Like in my possession. So yeah, we'll pluck her in where we can, but I'm just, I'm still afraid. Sorry. Possibly the most fun book I read is called Mrs. L, Conversations with Alice Roosevelt Longworth by Michael Teague. And he just went and visited her late in her life. They developed a friendship and she basically dictated the whole thing. She just told him stories. There are so many illustrations things from her own collection, pictures of her house, and including that Alice in Plunderland poem is in that book. With the words that you couldn't say on the show. Yeah, it's not that I couldn't say it. It's just it required more uh, explanation than I was willing to give. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So like beyond the bleep. Right, right. Yeah. And then a delightful book, a little kid book, that I absolutely adore and actually think would be good to buy as a present. What to Do About Alice by Barbara Curley, illustrated by Edwin Fotheringham. And the subtitle is What to Do About Alice, How Alice Roosevelt Broke the Rules, Charmed the World, and Drove Her Father Teddy Crazy. I agree with you. This is a great gift book. I even like I just lo- I love all the things you're making a show of yourself. Well, you do it. Why shouldn't I? And it shows grumpy TR on the podium and Allison's waving and everyone's <laughs> looking at her waving. Hi. <laughs> it's so cute. Anyway, I love it. And I actually just got like sucked into it again while I was holding it in my hand. Oh, highly I wondered what that pause was. <laughs> highly like, advocate that book. Um, So I want to move on to something. I think it's exciting. 
I don't know how development deals work. So the last knowledge I have of this is from February 2022, but that first book we mentioned, the Cordray book, theoretically is in development to be a series on HBO Max. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And there is a another connection because the writer of this proposed show, which is supposed to be a 30-minute comedy, I don't know how that's going to work. We'll just see. Also wrote Santa Clarita Diet that stars Drew Barrymore, the granddaughter of Alice Roosevelt's good friend, Ethel Barrymore. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent circle there. I love that show. I mean, zombies, but (laughs) it was great. There is an Audible original scripted drama. It's a historical fiction starring Emma Roberts as Alice. It's not very anachronistic like the audio drama Edith about Edith Wilson, which I always tell people they should listen to because it's hysterical. This one is not like that. But I thought it was very good. It has a lot of Eleanor and Franklin in it. So for all of you who are hungry for some more Eleanor, she their relationship is in that particular Audible original drama. I have tons and tons and tons of links. And rather than just list them, I'll just give you an overview. The memoirs of Stepmama Edith's secretary, um, a story of all the pets that they brought in, a series from the Reagan archives called White House Kids. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, an episode of her. You can go anywhere at the Theodore Roosevelt Center.org. There are many links there. Also, we didn't talk about the teddy bear story and how the teddy bear got to be called the teddy bear, but we'll provide you a link to talk about that. A video for the song Alice Blue Gown, which actually didn't come out until 1920. So, like, kind of after the height of her popularity. This was part of a movie that came out in 1920, so there's a video there. And there are plenty of pictures of Alice and company on the trip with Taft to Asia. Mm -hmm. I'm going to also link you up to uh, White House History. They have a pictorial online exhibit about her wedding, and there's lots of pictures there. Um, I just thought it was fun, a St. Louis Post-Dispatch article about her at the uh, 1904 World's Fair an interview with her in the Washington Post at age 90. Those are my favorite ones. <laughs> that whitehousehistory.org actually has, as that's just an element, there's actually eight White House daughters who were married from the White House. And mm-hmm. the Alice Roosevelt pages are just part of a larger digital exhibit about the the other seven are there too. So right. you can back out of Alice and go there. And then if you want to go down this deep dive, and it is vitriolic and very political and has a lot of references that you might have to look up unless you're an aficionado, but all of TR's articles in the Kansas City Star are at an archive that we'll provide you for if that is your particular interest. Excellent. I have nothing else. And in closing, how about this? A quote from Alice herself. I seem to have achieved a symbolism of sorts in my dotage, rather like Queen Victoria, I fear, but hopefully with more levity. All I've really done is to have a good time. I've covered a lot of territory. I'm amused, and I hope amusing. I've always believed in the adage that the secret of eternal youth is arrested development. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few of your friends about an episode you think they'll love or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. The song in the middle is from our old friend James Harper, creating art as Harper Active. The song's called A Fork or A Fork Don't Fit, and I 
and I don't know why. And the song at the end is Forget the Princess by Collection Gets. See you soon. Thank you.